Well, hi everybody. Uh, welcome to Stress Free Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle, and it is the 9th of February, 2023. And whatever you do, you can trust me, I'm a pilot. I hope everybody's doing well out there. Uh, I'm feeling so much better. I was really, really out of it on uh, Monday. I would, uh, that's, I think, four out of five Stratosphere Studios I missed. I did not want to miss that one. But. <laughs> I am uh, much better now. So, um, it's good to be back. Uh, I was able to, um, I talk about this on uh, my right angle, which will be out, I guess, tomorrow. Um, the, uh, I was able to get uh, the last, uh, the last, um, last Adderall out of Hanoi. Uh, I had to get a, uh, I was on a, 20 milligram prescription. They had 12 and a half milligrams. That's all they had to get a new prescription. Ran down there, stood in line, and um, got my drugs. And uh, it's amazing how how much that um, that helped. So I wouldn't say I was addicted to it to this Adderall. I talk about it like I said. If I talked about it before last week, and I'll be talking about it on, on my right angle show too. But uh, I certainly was dependent on it, and I had thought that. Um, coming off of it would basically be, you know, just make me kind of tired. I did not expect the uh, flatline mental fog and depression and all the rest of that stuff. But in any event, uh, most of that seems to be behind us, so that's good. Um, let's see. We're going to do a lot of questions tonight because I don't have a lot to talk about in advance. Just kind of checking the comments here as we go along, letting people kind of settle in, you know. Um, uh, the making steady progress uh, on these scripts. I'm just about to turn in six, six out of eight. Um, I have uh, been talking with the producers about uh, a problem that I've got, uh, high quality problem, high class problem, we would say. Uh, and that is that um, it's uh, the best way I tried to describe it was a, um, a it's a granularity issue. So got um, I had seven episodes for this and then I said I'm, I'm going to need an eighth. Uh, so you get them kind of laid out after all this research and all the notes and everything, get everything kind of where you want it. So it's episode two, I'm going to cover this, 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 and this. You get into episode two, you start covering this and this. Oh, I didn't know about that. It runs a little long. And you start to cover the second chapter in part two, the second beat of episode two. And you're like, holy cow, I didn't know anything about that. That's amazing. How about that? And so that goes in. Next thing you know, you're at the word limit, and it knocks stuff into the next episode. Uh, I was writing for an 8,500-word episode. That's what I thought they wanted. Uh, turned out one of the, they wanted 7,000, so I am 85% written. But here's what I mean about the granularity. So uh, I had this problem with... I didn't have it with Apollo 11. I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with Apollo 11. That was a manageable piece of history, right? The space race. Uh, and I didn't have the problem on America's Forgotten Heroes because every one of those stories was a one-off. I had it internally, but not as a series. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but I had a big problem with it on the Cold War. And what the problem is, is that uh, you get into this thing and you start seeing all of this stuff and you want to include it. So so if you have whatever limit you have on your episodes, you you find all this extra stuff, you put it in there, and that means all the rest of the history moves back another episode, then 
that moves back another episode, and that moves back. In the case of um, the Cold War, I you know I had a couple notes comments about this, and uh, and they're right. It's like I only I could only get I couldn't get any more episodes, and and there was so much cool stuff happening that the last episode was like you know I don't know ten fifteen years of stuff, and every other other ones were you know one episode per year something like that. Anyway, um, so. Uh, I talk with them about this problem, and basically, in a nutshell, I'm um, halfway, most of the way through. I'll be all the way through episode six out of eight, and Lennon is still around. Um, it's not a question, Ed Smith. Don't you have an editor who can help you kill some of those children? I can definitely get the word count down. That's not the problem. Uh, if it'll it'll be better, it'll be tighter uh, running at seven. The problem is is that I'm out. At, I'm about to wrap up episode six of eight, and Lennon is still alive. Uh, he died in 1924, so you got an 80-year history of the of the Soviet Union, and uh, I'm in 1924 at the end of six episodes. <laughs> Finish him. So what I did was I talked to I talked to our producer. I don't, he hasn't heard back from Daily Wire guys, but the producer I'm working on working with named David's a great guy. And I said, look, here's the problem, and I don't want to do what we did with the Cold War. And, you know, can we can we turn this into a two-parter because they have uh, contracted me for an unspecified second seven-episode series, seven episode series. All right, let's make it, you know, let's make it two-parter, seven and seven. We'll just do the So they ran that past um, uh, the guys back at Daily Wire, and they, they didn't like the idea. And, and they they were right. They said... You know, we got the Cold War coming out, Bill, 13 episodes of that. If you do, you know, if you do 14, 15 episodes of um, of the history of the Soviet Union, that's an awful lot of Russia. I said, yeah, well, that actually makes sense. I'll figure out a way to kind of work this in here. And then, honestly, God, I was driving home on the call. 30 seconds later, I called back and said, um, hey, I have an idea, David. Um, you know, you never know. You know what hole the rabbit goes into, but you never know what hole it's going to come out of. I wouldn't have put all this stuff in there if I didn't think it was fascinating. And the reason it's taken so long is because I had the history of the, uh, you know, the the secret police chiefs. I had that down. I've done that from memory off the top of my head. Uh, Zachary uh, Lahaki, I guess, wants to know what what the heck's everybody talking about. I can fill you in. There's always people arriving late. I've, I've been working on a series for Daily Wire. It's my fourth history series. This one's on the history of the Soviet Union, and um, and it. I, I I really thought it would be done by. I certainly thought it'd be done by the end of December. I thought it'd probably be done by you know late October, mid November. Hello to everybody out there. I'll get to those in a second. Um, so, like I said, you you you've got an idea what you want to do. And you go at it, and you start laying it out, and then, at least in my case, I start doing the research. I was originally going to have the Russian Revolution in my head take up maybe four or five paragraphs uh, of the first episode. Then I realized, now the first episode deals with all these dead bodies currently in Moscow. I really like that. So I'll make it first, you know, I'll have the Russian Revolution finished in a couple of paragraphs in the second episode. Well, I finished the Russian Revolution in... Uh, episode five of eight, and I'm still on six, and we still got the Civil War going on, and Lenin's still alive, and all the rest of it. So, um, 
what I found was uh, I found that the stuff that I didn't know a lot about, which was the revolution, I found that to be more interesting than than what I originally pitched because it it explains and and um, motivates all of the murder. I was just basically going to make this a body count. There's all the people they killed here, all the people they killed there, and all that. And I'll still get a lot of that in there. But the the deeper I got into it, the the uh, thank you for that. Dwayne Dwayne Cates in our uh, Twitch stream says the best stories tell themselves. Yes, they do, and it's not good to fight that if you have the luxury to not fight it. So, um, so anyway, here's what happens. So I so I realized. I'm starting off with the first one. This is my original pitch. I'm going to start with Felix Zerzinski, the first head of the Cheka. And it's going to be, like I said many times, Zerzinski, Mezinski, Yagoda, Yezhov, Beria, and Dropov, Era, and Putin. And I knew that stuff real well. And then I then I realized, okay, I've got this. Uh, got to start with Zerzinski and all of his murders and stuff. And and I realized I can't tell the story of how a guy goes out and murders 10 million people without explaining the kind of government that sends them out there. So I got more and more and more into the um, into the Russian Revolution. And the more I read about it, the, the, the more the more I liked that story as a as a reflection of what Russia is and how it got to be the way it is. There's still plenty of blood and murder in there. But when you look at how these people came to power, uh, that's where the story is. So um, I said, is there any way? We, look, all this stuff is still, you know, transient and temporary. I'm just giving it to you because you guys are insiders and friends and all that. But um, so I called back and said, hey, can we just call this the Russian Revolution? Because that would solve all of my problems in terms of running long and stuff. We could get this revolution done. And I'll spend an episode or two just here's what went downstream of the revolution. And um, he said, yeah, that sounds great. They want to tie it in with Putin because that's obviously the news story. It's why I was asked to do it in the first place. I hate to think that, you know, 20 years from now, the war in Ukraine's still going on. I haven't finished the thing yet. Uh, but um, they said uh, that's really where the buzz is. So I said, so just spitballing this. It, how about if we call it something like... Uh, Vladimir Putin, child of the revolution, or or uh, or birth of the state of fear, you know, so, so something like that, just tie it in. Um, but but boy, I'll tell you what the uh, the Russian Revolution, all of it. The last episode uh, is called uh, the Weapon of Democracy. It's all about how it's all about how the socialists defeated democracy. Uh, yeah, a lot of people saying it should be called the Evil Empire. Actually, it's not a lot of people. It's just Dave Olson on, on, on two different Twitch screens. Thank you, Eric Trexler, for a uh, for a uh, super chat. Appreciate that. Um, so, uh, Zachary uh, Lahaki says here, and I always apologize if I get the names wrong. That's mostly my eyesight. Which really doesn't seem different from the Soviet Union, even after all these years. And that's the you know, it's one of the things that's definitely going to get into this thing. You had. 80 years of, of murder and terror, and then you had 10 years maybe of incompetence and criminality, and then 
you're now when I listen to Putin and I listen to these Russian mill bloggers and, and you know I, they're all they're all blowing steam they're all on the if they're all being paid by the government but I heard one of these guys a couple days ago or something saying well one woman said this is either going to end with our victory in Ukraine or World War three nuclear war World War three and I gotta tell you the second I heard that I said well, well let's go then let's go bring them out trot them out I know our stuff works we'll see if yours does I'm not going to be intimidated or threatened by you you can you want to make claims about nuclear war to end this thing I'm perfectly happy to have that discussion that's what I wanted to say um and and the reason I wanted to say that, I, I don't understand why so many people seem to be missing the point about this. I hear so much about how Ukraine is corrupt. I get it. All of it. I get all of it. What, what I don't, nothing supersedes the fact that the tanks went from Russia into Ukraine and that, and that Putin had, did, had done that because he'd gotten away with taking Georgia under Obama in 2008, and he got away with taking Crimea under Obama in 2014. Trump said to him at a dinner, uh, Vlad just going, oh, by the way, parenthetical, but there's a fabulous uh, salad here, by the way. Um, if you invade Ukraine, I'm, I'm going to strike Moscow. That's what he said. He said that verbatim. So guess what? While Trump was president, he didn't strike uh, he didn't go into Ukraine, but then along comes Biden, so he's in it again. So to me, this is precisely, exactly, precisely, exactly what happened with Adolf Hitler, where you, 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 he, you have an agreement, he breaks the agreement on a small, relatively small scale. Nobody really cares about Georgia. He had the good sense to do it during um, during our election in 2008. And and we and we did nothing. Okay, and then so it's so now we're going to Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, and we didn't do much of that either. Then he launches a full-scale war, expecting us not to do anything, and being perfectly logical about that because we didn't do anything last couple of times. This is precisely what Hitler did when he took over. When he first of all, when he marched into the demilitarized Rhineland, and then he um, then he annexed Austria, and then he uh, the way. Putin's annexed eastern Ukraine. And then he basically eats up the Sudetenland, and then he eats the rest of Czechoslovakia. So when he finally goes into Poland, Hitler's actually a little amazed that anybody's making a big deal out of it. You have to stop these people. You have to stop them. And um, I have to tell you, uh, well, uh, King of Clean says Putin is not Hitler. He may not be Hitler, uh, uh, King of Cleans, but I'll tell you this. He is and he is a lawless aggressor. If Ukraine is an independent country, and it is, then the only thing that, in my opinion, matters is which way do the tanks go when that line was crossed. So um, I just lost the argument today. I'm perfectly happy to hear this, how all this stuff works, um, how I lost the argument here, because to me, this seems straightforward. There's no, there is, there's this stuff, all, well, NATO is encroaching on them and, and all the rest of it. NATO didn't invade Georgia. NATO didn't take over Crimea. NATO didn't do any of that stuff. Um, so I don't understand where the defense of, of Putin comes from. I, I really don't. I, I don't know if anybody buys his, um, a, you know, trying to save Christian civilization kind of thing. But, um, I, uh, yeah, I'm happy to keep my opinion, even if I'm wrong. It's fine with me. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, to me, it is a 
crystal clear case of a guy who grew up in the Soviet Union with the paranoia and the inferiority complex of that state built in. He, he was born in Leningrad. He tried to join the KGB at 16. He came back, did all these other things. He is, he is the product of that system. And that system is a system of murder, terror, paranoia, and aggression. And, and that's that. And, and so um, there it sits, man. And you don't know you have you have evidence that force deters him because when we had a president who said if a then b then it didn't happen so pretty clear to me uh that, that this whole thing is what it wasn't our fault but if we had been not quite so brazenly incompetent and uh and weak during the afghanistan uh debacle then um then that's that uh so look here's here's what i learned about ukraine from my wife this is before the invasion happened well before the invasion happened it's five six years ago now the the russian people look at ukraine probably the same way that americans look at texas um It's somewhat, somewhat similar to that. It had, it had been considered part of greater Russia, but so had Finland, and so had Lithuania, and Estonia, and Latvia, and so had Belarus, and so they had been greater Russia before the communists came along. So, so, and, and you, could, you could get this because it was people up, up until like this invasion, everybody talked about the Ukraine. Um, so their re, so the, the, the reaction of the Russians that I've talked to when they talk about Ukraine is basically this. They consider them to be uh, dishonest. They consider them to have stolen a lot of, of infrastructure that the Soviet Union put in there. And the second that they've been built up, they go running off to the West and uh, and and the Russians see that as a betrayal. And they also uh, see this, that they're completely encircled by US military, NATO military bases all around their entire perimeter. That's all true too. But, but this paranoia on the part of Russia is a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Russians believe that they have to have buffer states to protect themselves from invasion. And because they're constantly on the aggressive end of trying to rebuild these buffer states, they find themselves surrounded by NATO military bases. So, see, this is the thing I don't understand. Why are we believing the people who lied about Trump, Russia, quid pro quo, Biden laptop, Epstein murders, and so on? It, I, don't, I don't care. There's one piece of data that's on the ground that is indisputable, and that is which directions were the tanks going when they crossed the line between two countries. That's all that really matters in terms of the, in terms of the culpability of this thing. 
And and this is what they, they've gotten away with them. We let them get away with it. Look, I give you my entire argument right here, okay? If we had done something about Georgia in 2008, if we had, if we had said no in 2008, we wouldn't be in this situation now. But again, again, exact same thing, exact same thing. We just let it go, let it go, let it go. They get bolder and bolder and bolder. And then when finally somebody stands up to them, mostly they're surprised, surprised, right? So there you go. That's, that's it. So in any event, in any event, in terms of the work I'm doing, the historical work of the Soviet Union, uh, he is the archetypical Czechist. He calls himself a Czechist. He refers to himself as a Czechist. The Cheka was designed to keep that ideology in power through murder, intimidation, and fear. And I don't approve of that. And I don't approve of the 100 million people who've been killed around the world because of communism. They don't get any press because the press is on the left. Right? So they get all these excuses made and all these apologetics and all the rest of it. Uh, somebody has to speak for those 100 million people that the communists killed. And and Vladimir Putin is a communist. He is a communist who is doing everything he can to restore the Soviet Union. Now, let me say this. Um, uh, Cody Fett with a $10 super chat. Do the states around Russia not have the right to seek allies to defend themselves against the empire that has invaded and or oppressed them for hundreds of years? Should we not help our allies? See, this is this, this is my argument. This is what I believe. But Let's just let's just go through the intellectually honest procedure of trying to understand the other side. What the hell is that? Is that a some UFO radiation field or something? Maybe it's a hair floating around. Let's just do that. Let's let's try and grant his case. And and my wife made a pretty clear emotional case for how Russians feel, not only about Ukraine but NATO. My wife is an American. When she got here, uh, she was a Russian, and and she and I spent a lot. In fact, the reason we met was because of my interest in, in the history of Russia. So it is a self-fulfilling prophecy, and and as I said in the Cold War, I think the first episode of the Cold War, which is going to be released pretty quickly, I think the episodes one and two, they're just wrapping them up. What I said in the Cold War was you can't understand why these two sides could be at each other's throats for better part of 70 years or 60 years or whatever. God, there's some strange voodoo going on here. You can't understand that unless you realize that the psychology of the United States and the psychology of the Soviet Union are not just different. They are antithetical to each other, antithetical to each other. That's why we could never understand them and they could never understand us, right? It's, it's an easy case to make. Russia has been invaded throughout its entire history. Just every single army on the planet has gone marching through there. Mongols went through there. Chinese went through there. Vikings went through there. The, the Swedes, when the Swedes were warlike, Finland went through there. Poland, back and forth, all of it. They've been fighting the Turks. They've been fighting Western Europe, the, the Polish, the French, the Germans. Freaking Napoleon marches into Moscow, burns down the capital. Hitler does nearly the same thing, kills 20 million other people, right? So I see their perspective. And, and since they've been constantly invaded, they want protection. They want buffers 
right? And they're suspicious of everybody because the idea of not invading Russia is inconceivable to them based on their history. That's all that's ever happened in their history is, in, is they've been invaded. So they're inward-facing, land-based power. Now, compared to that, America is the exact opposite. Russia has always been invaded, except for a little unpleasantness with the Canadians, which they'll get their comeuppance for in, in, uh, in the War of 1812. America has never been invaded. Russia wants buffers. We've got the two most effective buffers in the world. We've got the two largest bodies of water on either side of the, of the country. We have the longest peaceful border, the, lo the longest un unguarded, unfenced border with Canada. And despite the enormous problems we have with the problem with, with Mexico, it's, and it's huge. It's huge. It's an enormous problem. It's still not a military border. It's not a militarized border. Maybe it should be, but it's not, right? So we are completely buffered. And the idea of invading America is inconceivable. And so, and so when, you, when you have America dealing with Russia, the idea of us wanting to invade Russia and just go in there and take their stuff is inconceivable to us. Why the hell would we want to do that? The Russians look at this and they say, why the hell wouldn't they do this? Everybody else has done it. So we and they are, are, are looking at things through opposite ends of the telescope. So then the question is, well, what's the, what's the moral answer to this? The reason I started this off by talking about how almost all of this is happening in the first four or five years of the, of, of the Russian Revolution. And one of the reasons I'm spending so much time here is because of how tragic, how tragically close Russia came to not turn into this worst possible timeline that we seem to be living in. I mean, I talked about Kerensky and, 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 and how he wanted the constituent assembly in the, in the last episode I finished was how the Bolsheviks managed to defeat that attempt at democracy. But this is a perfect example, right? Perfect example. So I'm, I'm, it's time to write about the Kulaks. The Kulaks are wealthy Russian peasants who maybe had a cow or two um, that made them wealthy by Russian peasant standards. And all of the Bolshevik communist vitriol was, for the first half of their existence, was aimed at the Kulaks the rich, so-called rich peasants. These are poor people. They're just richer than the rest of the poor people. The reason they're richer than the rest of the poor people is because they're better farmers. So these better farmers are hiring some of these farmers who can't farm, and they're paying the money to work on their farm because otherwise these guys will starve. Well, communism doesn't like that, so that's why they went after the kulaks. They always need a, a class energy enemy. I said, I love this line. I said, the, the thing about about this kind of socialism is an enemy shortage is an energy shortage. They, they, it runs on enemies. So here's the thing. I thought, okay, let me just make sure. Because I, I, I knew that Lenin invented them as an enemy, but I didn't know if he invented the word. So I look up the word kulak. Just trying to I heard I know what a kulak is. I've been talking about kulaks for 50 years now. But I wanted to know where the word came from. And it turned out 
This is the stuff that just, this is what makes it such a great story because it's so bloody tragic. It's just so tragic. So Kerensky, there's a two revolutions in 1917. There's the, 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 the February Revolution where the Tsar advocates and, the, and all of the kind of inept, incompetent, you know, Duma, everything's in complete chaos. Alexander Kerensky steps forward. He is a genuine liberal in the classic sense of the word, you know, elections, private property, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, all that stuff. But he's also a little bit too flighty. He's a little bit too flamboyant, you know. And and he's also not ruthless enough. He doesn't realize what he's up against. He's not strong enough. So I'm looking at this word kulak and stuff, and then and and I and it leads me back to a guy named Pyotr Stolipin, who I'd heard of many times. He was the, the best. He was the best um, administrator that that the Romanovs, as a dynasty, a three hundred year dynasty, is the best. He's the best official they ever had. And he was, without question, the best official that um, Nicholas II ever had. So I said, okay, so, still, so was it still even? This is how the research works, and this happened just a couple weeks ago. So maybe a week ago. So I'm still leaping. Okay, so let me just find out. I know about still leaping. Let me just see what still leaping has to do with the kulaks. And then, out of nowhere, here's what I find. Ten years before the Russian Revolution, 11 years before the Russian Revolution, There's the fake revolution of 1905. They opened fire on, on unarmed protesters. That's Bloody Sunday. And that starts nationwide rioting. It's the failed revolution. Trotsky called it the dress rehearsal for the October 17 revolution. So this is in 1905. And the whole country is aflame after that. Every single province in Russia, czarist Russia, is on fire, except for one. And this one is administered by this guy named uh, Pyotr Stolipin. Now, one of the points I keep making in this series from the beginning is that Lenin is a theorist. He is an intellectual. It's all about theory. It's Marx said this, Marx said that. Well, people don't behave that way. Well, then the people are wrong because Marx said this and so on. Well, if we do this, then we're all going to go bankrupt. Yeah, but Marx says we won't. Marx says we'll become rich, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to be prosperous because Marx said that's all Lenin did, it's all Trotsky did, was they sat around and they did their theory. And I saw a quote about this a half an hour ago, which to me is the definitive quote. It's from, uh, what's his name, Alan? Um, hang on. Hang on. This to me is, 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 is in a nutshell, I couldn't, believe it. I, I couldn't believe I hadn't heard this quote before. Uh, here, hang on. Everybody be cool for a second here. Because it's... Uh, come on. I saved it somewhere. Did I close that damn thing? I can't have it. All right. Um, hang on. Alan Watts. Uh, who I used to listen to all the time. Back before I uh, before the lights went on, I used to listen to Alan Watts. I'd never seen his picture before. Though. That's quite surprising. I'd never seen it until just now. Um, Alan Watts I used to listen to on, on National Public Radio, believe it or not, uh, back when I was capable of listening to those kind of things. So here's what Alan Watts said, and I heard this about a half an hour ago. This is Lenin in a nutshell. Lenin 
and communism and intellectualism and leftism in a nutshell. I had heard a great joke that I that I liked a lot was you go to a communist or a left winger with a solution and they go, okay, sure, it works in practice, but will it work in theory? Ha ha ha. This is what this is what um, Alan Watts philosopher said about this. A person who thinks all the time has nothing to think about except thoughts. So he loses touch with reality and lives in a world of illusions. By thoughts, I mean specifically chatter in the skull, perpetual and compulsive repetition of words of reckoning and calculating. That is exactly what Lenin is. And so now I'm looking at this guy, Stilipin, right? And Stilipin is the anti-Lenin. Oh, hang on a second, Cody Fett, early bedtime for me, but on a personal note, most of the Russians I know want the invasion to fail because they think it means the ends of Putin's regime and they get another shot of freedom. That's the way I know that the Russians I know feel the same way. Let me get to what, what Watts has said. I've just found that quote earlier today, but that's this is exactly the thing I'm trying to paint with Stilipin in episode five. Stilipin, Lenin is, is, a, is, is married to a woman he doesn't love, but who is a good Bolshevik. So he and Krupskaya spend basically their entire lives in cafes in Paris and Zurich talking about theory and writing article after article about theory and how if we do this and that'll happen according to theory. And then Trotsky comes in, he brings his theory in. They're all intellectuals. None of them, none, none of them, not one of the Bolsheviks, none of them have any practical experience in anything. They're the worst, most incompetent group of, of bitter, self-centered children that I have ever seen in history. They're the antithesis of our founding fathers. So, I'm, so, so I had that pretty much iced. But then all of a sudden I find about this Stolipin. And Stolipin is like, grew up on, on it. He was, his parents were landowners. They weren't super wealthy or part of the nobility or anything, but, but he grew up on a, on a, essentially on a, on a farm. And he managed the land. He managed the land for like 10 or 15 years. And the way he managed the land was he didn't just sit there in a cafe and write something about it. He, he went out and spent days with the peasants and talked with them about all this other stuff, right? So I, I'm giving away so much of this, but you know what? It's a small audience compared to what they're doing. In daily, and I'll just look at this. Daily Wire is concerned. Uh, this, is, uh, this is just uh, pre, um, this is sort of, you know, teaser promotion. Let me find the uh, copy I'm looking for. Hang on a second. So there's Stolipin, right? And it turns out that when Russia is on fire, where'd it go? There it is. When Russia's on fire, Stolipin's got the only province that's not burning because he's a combination of, of smart, competent, calm, reasonable, and he works with reality. This is the antithesis of Lenin. Uh, sorry. I'll get this one, and I'm going to put the super chats away for a second. Levi Lance says, I used to listen to Alan Watts. I would say he opened me up to thinking about things in a more sophisticated way but then I was able to push past his philosophy through experience and toil. Some of what he said, thought he was great, was great. Some of what, it, what he said, I thought was nonsense. Anyway, come, come on back with me to Stilipin. So because he was a practical man and a strong man, father of, of, of six, he's running the poorest and the most rebellious oblast province in all of Russia, and that's the only one that's orderly, under control. There's no mass murder going on, nothing. So the Tsar says, well, we better get this guy in here. So he calls Stolipin in, makes him minister of the interior, starts to have a big effect, then makes him prime minister. And now it parts. Now we get to the part where it's just going to make you want to cry.
1906, he's made prime minister. And he starts something called the Stolypin Agricultural Reforms. And here's what Stolypin found. This is why these episodes keep expanding, because I think this stuff is so important, and I just didn't know it. I knew that Tsar Alexander II, who was Nicholas II's grandfather, who was murdered by socialist terrorists, blown up in a, in a carriage, and died in, in the palace with Nicky and his son, his Nicholas's father, right there, blew his legs off, basically, bleeds out in the, in the palace. Nicholas II sees this as a young boy. This is what's coming for him. Nick, Alexander II freed the Russian serfs in 1861, did it two years before Lincoln, and he freed 23 million people who were held in bondage. Now, serfdom and slavery are not quite the same things. You could, a slave you could, you could buy and sell. A serf, you couldn't buy and sell, but you did own them. They were your property. If you sold them and bought them, you had to buy and sell them with the land. They came with the land. They were considered like like a forest or a field or a livestock. If you bought somebody's land, you bought their property, and including that property was the serfs. So these were not free people. So finally, Alexander II says, all right, the Russian landowners and nobility that had these big estates had thousands of, of, of slaves that they called serfs. They called them souls. We have 30,000 souls on our, on our, you know, that's how many souls do you have? Oh, only 4,000. So basically, Alexander II sees that these Russian landowners have mortgaged their serfs. 80% of the serfs in the country, by the time Alexander gets to this, are owned by the bank. They've taken, here's the ownership of our serfs, we'll take that cash, thank you, and then spent the cash, right? So Alexander II frees them. And interestingly enough, he not only frees them, he gives them a lot of land, a lot of land. And he says, we're going to put them on, and to get this word, you got to check the pronunciation, but what we're going to do, Alexander II says, we're going to, we're going to liberate 23 million people, and we're going to put them on, on land, that'll be their land, and we're going to call these things obshinas, settlements, communes. So he takes these huge parts of land, and here's a big hunk of land, here's a big hunk of people, put the big hunk of people on the big hunk of land, figure it out. So these things are communes. And the people living on them are communists. This is 150 years before, well, 100 years before, uh, no, 70 years before Lenin shows up. So Russia has these constant famines, can't feed itself. Biggest country in the world cannot feed itself. Stolypin comes into this catastrophe. The peasants are, on, are, are, are completely outraged. Lenin is agitating from afar. They're all being told to murder and kill the landlords and everything. And Stolypin has to do something. So what Stolypin does is he looks and he uses his practical experience and he goes to one of these obshinas, which he'd been to before, but I'm writing it like he's out in the field. So here's what an obshina is, okay? So it's a, it's a piece of communal land, but it uses something called the open field method of agriculture, which is a product of the Middle Ages and, uh, and, and, and has rightly gone into the dustbin of history. What the Abshinas was were these giant parcels of land, and if you look at them from a map or from the sky, it's just nothing but cross-hatched in all kinds of weird directions, just, just, just nothing but just cross-hatchings like this. Then there's common areas. 
So you look at the fields of an Oshina, and what you see are these rows and then rows at right angles and rows at right angles to that. And the peasants owned the land, but they owned a row. Or they might own several rows, but the rows aren't adjacent. I'm going to plow this row, then I'm going to take my plow, and I'm going to move a half a mile that way where I have another row or two, and I'm going to deal with that. Now, the guy next to me has a row, and the guy on the other side has a row too, and he's stomped all over my crops, so I'm going to get him. So these things are constantly at war with each other, the most inefficient things ever, and there are these giant communal areas, grazing pastures, and now you have the tragedy of the commons, right? The people who get up early and stay up late are grazing their animals more than their fair share than the people who don't. So everybody's trying to kill everybody all the time. They're constantly at war with each other. Stilipin looks at this. He sees these rows and rows of, of farmland plowed and the, and, the, and the farmland next to them not owned by anybody. And, and he says, this is insane. Insane. So are you sitting down? So here's what, here's what Stolypin did in Russia in 1906. He says, we're scratching this whole commune system. We're just getting rid of it. Okay? We're going to take the land, and we're going to enclose it. That's the legal term, enclosure. We're going to enclose it. In other words, we're going to say, this is the borders of this piece of private land, and it is owned by you. And you will own this piece of private land. All of it's over here. That's yours. And he did this. He basically privatized all of these communes that had 23 million serfs living on them when the Tsar gave them the land. So Russia goes from having famines every 15, 20 years, real famines, and in the space of six, seven, eight, nine years, Stolypin has turned Russia. In 1912, Russia's agricultural output is 30% greater than Argentina, Canada, and the United States combined. Combined. He just went in and, and, and gave it private property. He said, we're making a bet on the strong and the sober. So, all of a sudden, everybody's got their own farm, and some people are making their farms work, and other people not making their farms work. Greatest joke about Russia, most honest joke about Russia ever, is there's this, there's this peasant, and he's suddenly saved enough money, worked hard enough, and he's finally had enough money to buy himself a cow. And his neighbor falls to his knees and starts praying and screaming, and the sky opens up, and God says, what is, your, what is the source of your anguish, my son? What would you like me to do? And the second peasant says, I want you to kill that goddamn cow. Not that I want a cow. I don't want to work hard. I want you to kill his cow. So he, um, I'm going to turn these bells and whistles off. So Stilipin takes this, oh, for the love of God. Hang on. Sorry about this. They went do not disturb bloody. I hate these things. Sorry. Okay. So Stolypin says, no, this is nuts. It's inefficient and it's nuts. And everybody's at war with each other, so we're gonna stop. So all of a sudden now out comes all of this incredible productivity. And not just that. He reforms industry. He makes he makes um, 
He makes Russia the number one agricultural growth in the world, number one industrial growth in the world. Gross national product by the time of his, his reforms really kick in, Russia becomes the fourth biggest economy in the world. In the world. They're not even in the top 10 now. I don't even think they're in the top 15. Okay? And so it's all working. It's all working. Everything's working. Russia's working. And nobody's happy. The leftists aren't happy because he's coming in with private property. And all of these social revolutionaries and these Marxists are saying, well, I'm not interested in the fact that the peasants are living better and we're not starving anymore. This doesn't match our theory. So we're, gonna, so we're angry and we're going to kill him. And the czar and his people are angry and want to kill him too because he's, he's making waves. He's changing the way things are done. And pretty soon these peasants are going to start owning stuff. Then they're going to get a little uppity and they're going to want to vote and all the rest of this stuff. So he's, he's not a popular guy. So Stolypin, there's 10, there's 11 murder attempts on his life, 11 assassination attempts. Somewhere towards the end of his life, one of the things he said kind of quietly was, um, bury me where they kill me. Uh, he's early in his reforms. He's at a wooden dacha on an island. It's not his dacha, but he's having a meeting with, you know, peasants and, and local authorities trying to get this thing to work. And three socialist revolutionaries, three socialist terrorists, uh, put a bomb in the place and they blow it up. So wooden dacha blows a third of the building just to splinters. Stilipin is not hurt. He's got a couple splinters. 27 people killed, including his 15-year-old daughter had her legs blown off. So Stilipin goes and moves into the Winter Palace because it's a little more secure there. And then he just keeps going back out again. And he goes out and hangs out with these people, talks to the peasants. He doesn't come with a bodyguard. He doesn't come all armed up. He doesn't, he doesn't come out with guns blazing. He just goes out and talks to them. So in 1911, he's at the Kiev Opera House watching a performance of Rimsky-Korsakov's uh, The Story of Tsar or somebody or other. And at the end of the second act, the Tsar and, and two of his daughters are up in, a, in their box and some socialist terrorist walks up to him and shoots him twice in the chest and he looks up at the Tsar and motions for the Tsar to get out of the line of fire and he undoes his gloves and opens up his jacket and he's got these two big holes in him and down he goes, he dies four days later. And there you go. S-T-O-Y-L-P-I-N. He's a handsome guy. He's a strong guy. He don't put up any crap. When he became prime minister, there were 4,000 assassination, actual assassinations that occurred, not just attempts. The, the socialists murdered 4,000 ministers, church officials, governors, anybody. They just went and murdered everybody. So Stolypin said, well, those of you who are carried along with this, you can go to exile in Siberia. Those of you who started it, you're all going to hang. And, uh, and so next thing you know, you got law and order there. So there's, needless to say, a lot of people who, who don't like the story of Stolypin especially among the modern left, and there's big attempts to discredit him and stuff, and they're saying, well, the Tsar was about to sack him, which is true. And to their credit, when the... <laughs> See, here's what you need to know about Russia, right? Today, Russia today. They were asked, the Russian people were asked to poll in 2007, who is the greatest living, who is the greatest Russian of all time? 
Number one answer was Alexander Nevsky, who protected uh, Russia from invasion. The number two answer was Peter Stolypin. You know who the number three answer was? Joseph Stalin. So, if Stolypin had not been killed, in fact, if he had just had fundamental security precautions and he'd lived, he would have been sacked by the Tsar. But when the Tsar was finally overthrown and the provisional government was put in place, instead of well-meaning Alexander Kerensky, who is very flighty, very unstable, and not particularly experienced in anything, instead of the Kerensky government, it would have been the Stolypin government. And Stolypin would have held that provisional government together. He would have had the constituent assembly. This would have given him the credibility and the, uh, and the authority. And he would have crushed the Bolsheviks. And then there would have been no 100 million people killed in Russia. There would have been no gulags. There would have been no great terror. would have been no executions, no Black Marias, no, no shots through the night, no, no sounds of engines gunning so that you don't hear the screaming or the firing. If, it, if he had lived, then, then there would have been no Stalin. There would have been no Bolsheviks. There would have been no Korean War that the communists instigated. It would have been no Vietnam War that the communists instigated. It would have been no Berlin Wall. It would have been no Cold War. There would have been no communist Cuba. There would have been none of it. None of it. None of it. And it's enough to make you just want to cry. And the stuff I was writing just before we started the show. Did I say Cuba? I thought I said Cuba. And, and, what's my, and no red China either, by the way. No Chinese Communist Party. Um, I'll get to that in a second, Karsten. Um, but, no, uh, socialist revolutionary ran up and shot him at point-blank range because he was successful and he wasn't matching the theory. Everybody was fed. Country was finally getting into, into its stride. But no, it's like, it's like, it's like the... It's like the Balrog and the whip, right? It's just this this monster is falling into the cavern, and just as it's about to go away, it whoosh, grabs this guy and 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 pulls him up, grabs the country, pulls it down with it. I don't know what to I don't know what to say about that. Uh Bigel says there would have been no space race. Well, there wouldn't have been a a space race against the Soviets anyway. It might have been a competitive space race that could have started in the 1920s or 30s. You know, Robert Goddard did his work in the 20s. If you weren't so busy fighting all of this stuff, you know. Oh, and by the way, make a pretty good case that without, without, if Stal if Stalipin had lived, there would have been no communism. And I and I said, uh, I mentioned China and Vietnam and all the rest of it. There would likely, almost certainly, not have been a Nazi Germany either. There wouldn't have been a Hitler either. The Nazi party and all of those right-wing um, militia parties, free corps parties, were a result of agitation by communists. They went to this fascist extreme in order to defeat communism that were just burning things down. And it's enough you see this thing and you see this, this perfectly feasible sliver of a history and you just think, we're the, we're the, 
we're the nightmare timeline. You know, there's a timeline out there where none of this stuff happened, and they look at this and they're just mortified and shocked and horrified. They can't say anything about it. Um, anyway, uh, that's that. Let me just get these two super chats, and then we'll get some questions going here. Yes, that's a great point, too. Airtechy says leftists reject the idea of the great man theory because it contradicts their idea of the dialectic. Yes, and, and with that said, there's no greater example of one individual person changing the world than Lenin or Marx. They're, they're evidence of it. Piraka the Rapper, Piraka the Rapper, Piraka the Rapper, Sorry, close to that. I'm making an animated film using deepfake technology. I'm almost finished writing it, and this show is my biggest inspiration. I really want to talk to you about this deepfake stuff, Paraka. Um, if you can email me at info at billwhittle.com and mention, just put deepfake there, and then I ask you to contact me at the official uh, email address, I'm really, really interesting to talk to you because I'm going to get done with this thing in three weeks, and then I get a chance to go back to doing what I want to do. Um, anyway... Uh, what do you say about this, you know? I'm placing a wager on the strong and the sober, he said. We're going to give these people their own farms, and they're going to, and they're going to farm us out of this mess because he'd been managing land his whole life. Didn't match the theory. <sighs> well, anyway. So uh, it's getting close to being done. All right, so um, what was that? Oh, there was one... One question that's all that I wanted to get. Uh, uh, Carson's question. Uh, hey, Bell, short question. Did you learn from Natasha how socialism actually was? The truth is, yes, a little. Um, and what, what I mean by that is, but when Natasha was growing up, communism was in its last legs, right? It was, she was in her 20s when it, finally collapsed and most of the time uh, it was just a joke they had to sacrifice every third or every I think they had to sacrifice one Saturday day off a month to volunteer for the workers problems and they would just do it nobody wanted to do it and they'd see these parades and they're holding these faces these mummies and everybody knows that they're senile and incompetent and then some party hack would come in and talk about the glories of communism and all they want to do is um is listen to american music i'm gonna i'm curious to know if anybody's gonna get this joke natasha told me this joke i laughed so hard i know I, I i don't think i've ever laughed it's one of the three funniest jokes i've ever heard i i don't think it will have that effect on you but i'm curious to know if you get it this joke was going around when natasha was a teenager so there's a and Soviet Union still on, right? So uh, there's a uh, an offer for uh, Soviet uh, farmers, agricultural guys, to come over and study in the U.S. for a while. And it's an exchange program, so the Soviets agree to let it let it happen. Now there's this one guy there who who's um, who's going to go. He's like a you know young farmer. He's got the credentials. He's going to go. And at this time, before he leaves, the big fad in Russia this was true was chewing gum. That was, chewing gum was like, I don't know, having gold or something, right? Chewing gum. Everybody wanted it. Nobody had it. Everybody wanted it because they were catching glimpses of American culture. And that's what Americans do. They chew gum. 
And all they wanted was chewing gum, and they couldn't get any of it, but they thought it was the coolest thing in the world. So this guy goes over uh, to, um, to America, and he studies on the farm there for two and a half, three months. Comes back, his friends see him across the street, they come running towards him, and this guy's doing this, just back from America, like this. And all of his Russian friends went, ran up to him and they said, oh my God, my God, it seems so incredible, you just got back from America, what are you doing? And he says, I'm washing my socks. I just thought that was freaking hilarious. I just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed at that. Okay. So um, I didn't I didn't get it from uh, not so much of it from uh, Natasha. Uh, I, from Natasha, I got that it was a joke. That nobody took it seriously because she was there late, late Soviet Union. But I'll tell you who I did get it from, um, and that is a, a, a writer named uh, a huge effect on me. I haven't talked about him very much. His name is Vasco Vasilyonchev. He was a writer from Bulgaria. He was one of the top poets in Bulgaria, and poets are highly prized by, uh, by the Slavic people, by the Russians, the communists, right, because he grew up in communist Bulgaria. Uh, and because he was so talented as a poet and so widely read and so widely respected, he was, uh, he was given access to Western libraries. He, he got to go to these restricted places where nobody else could go except for the top-level nomenclatura, top-level communist guys. He's not a communist, he's just a writer. But he got to see, he got to see Western magazines and, and Western culture. And he decided, I'm, I'm going. Uh, so he had another friend named Luba, Lubo, who was also an engineer or something. And they decide they're going to escape from Bulgaria. And the way they're going to do it is they're going to take a train from, I guess they were in Sofia, going to take a train. I, I'm almost positive it was the Austrian border. And, and when they get to Austria, they're going to jump off the train. They're going to walk to the border. Then they're going to cross. And they're just going to ask for asylum. Hmm. So these two guys get on this train. Vasco wants to go on uh, like on a Friday because it's the busiest day, but Luba says, no, no, we're going on Sunday. And Vasco says, Sunday is a bad day to go. There's almost nobody on the trains on Sunday. That means the guards will have all of us to their to themselves. And Luba says, you'll see. So they went on Sunday. They went on Sunday. They got to the border uh, with Austria, and the guys are coming through and checking the passports. And their passports are really bad fakes so the soviet guys or the the communist bulgarian soldiers take a look at their passports and they go to call the numbers in but the office of the passport office is closed on sunday which lubo knew and vasco didn't so they couldn't confirm that they were fake passports so they give them the passports back and then they go so they jump off the train and they swim through rivers, under rivers, you know, this kind of thing, sleeping in barns. Vasco told me he was lying on the ground 
practically freezing to death. He was soaking wet, and he could see the cigarette, the, the glow from a cigarette of a guard that was out there looking for him to shoot him dead on sight about, you know, 30 yards away, just walking through, the, just walking through, just this little orange glow of this cigarette. So he finally makes it to, to um, Austria. They both do. They apply for asylum. They decide they want to come to the United States, decide to go to Miami. And I met him because he was running the box office at the Miami Planetarium. He was probably making six bucks an hour, maybe, selling tickets, selling paper tickets. That's what this guy did. Reading, reading all the time, selling paper tickets. And he was more than more than Horkheimer. He was the the biggest effect on on me. He he said, "You're a writer, and writers write, so start writing stuff." And and he was just he was just such an inspiration. But from him sitting there in the box office of the Miami Planetarium at you know nine fifty six p.m. praying to God that nobody shows up for the ten o'clock show so we can go home, um, we're just sitting in there talking. I'm sixteen, seventeen years old, and I, and I asked him about that. I said, "What what?" What was it like? Because you risked your life to do it. There are people after you ready to, to shoot you on sight to come to America. What was it that you had to get away from? And he said, um, I said, you know, is it just like the, the arrests and the murders of secret police? I, I, I knew a fair amount about it, but it was Bosco that really got me to the point where no matter how liberal I became, I was never a, le I was never a leftist. I was never a, a, a socialist in, ever. Never and, and never down on American business or the military, ever. So he says, you know, those things are always there. It's just this kind of ongoing, constant, like, like buzz of insects. is just this fear that you're going to get arrested. That's always there. He said, but that's not, what, that's not what made me leave. That's not what made life unbearable. I said, well, what was it? He said, what made life unbearable was the fact that when you live under socialism, every single day for hours a day, you are reminded of just how worthless you are. That never, ever, ever goes away. What do you mean? You want to you go down and, and buy some bread and some cheese to make a sandwich? That's three hours, four hours of your day. Right there. Four hours of your day to go get the bread to make a sandwich. You want a car? Or you want to get anything done, you have to you have to go to 17 different bureaus, and you have to and you have to have all of the paperwork in place, and they want it to not be in place, because they get a kick out of sending you to the back of the line. That's their little power trick. That's what these little that's what these little Eichmanns do. They they say, well, you know, we're this 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 and this, and oh, no, see, you needed to have this this stamp. Then, well, I did the thing stamp. Yeah, well, this is not the right stamp. But the guy at the other building said that this was the right stamp. Well, it's not. So if you come back with the right stamp, then, then I'll look at the papers again. How long is that going to take? Three months. Every minute of every day, every minute of every day, you are shown how worthless you are. Nothing is available. Everything is forbidden, and everything that's not forbidden is mandatory. And he said, I just, I could take it until I found out what the alternative was, that there was an alternative. And the alternative was the West. And when I started reading American stuff and seeing American movies, I just said, I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather get killed trying to get there than stay here. And that's, that's what he did. Yet another one of those people who risked their lives to get away from communism. Well, so far I have not seen a single American leftist risk their lives to get into communism because you don't risk your life to get into communism. You want to go live in 
Russia or you want to go live in China or North Korea, I'm sure they'll accommodate you. They just don't go. Yeah, Charlie Miller's uh, got the punchline from Reagan's joke. The, so the plumber's coming in the afternoon. So basically Reagan is telling this joke about he goes down and... Um, and I think he says, I want to buy a car. And the guy says, okay, comrade, sign these papers here. And there's a waiting list, and your car will be ready uh, on March uh, 16th of uh, 1963. And, the, and the, the worker says, that's 10 years from now. And he says, that's when the car will be ready. And so he says, okay, March 16th, 10 years from now, is, going to be, is the car going to be ready in the morning or the afternoon? And the guy says, why? And he says, because the, 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 the plumber's coming in the afternoon. Um, so that's the system, right? That's the that's the system that 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 our American universities are teaching American kids is is just so awesome and so fair and so everything. Uh, Fidel Castro claimed to live in a fishing hut and he dressed in fatigues his whole life. When he died, he had nine hundred million dollars in his personal bank account. His country's starving. He's got $900 million. Hugo Chavez's daughter inherited all of the oil rights to Venezuela. She's worth $4 billion, the daughter of the great Venezuelan communist. Their people are eating pets on the streets, but she's worth $4 billion. So there you go. Oh, Zachary, uh, Zachary says, I got the Russian joke now, Bill. I thought it was hilarious. It, 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 it takes a while to sink in on you, but there's something just so Russian about that. It's just so, and all of their sense of humor is just so tragic, and that's what makes it so precious to me. So, um, it, it's so bittersweet, you know? It's like, it's like, it's, it's laughing, it's laughing through the tears. And, um, yeah, they ate all the zoo animals, John Pershing points out. Thank you very much. Um, Monk and Training says, keep being awesome, Bill Semper. Well, bless you. Thank you. It's a great honor uh, to hear that. Uh, and Semper to you, uh, good sir. Uh, yeah, and, and the part that I still haven't gotten to yet and the part I'm looking forward to is all of the people who are top-level Bolsheviks who are saying, kill them all, kill them all, kill them all, signing thousands and thousands and thousands of death warrants, thousands and thousands, Every single one of them ends up in a basement. Every single one of them ends up crying and screaming and holding on to the arms of the guard while they put him up against the wall. Every single one of them is saying, no, it's a terrible mistake. Call Comrade Stalin Hill. Every one of them. That's the only justice that's there for those people who were murdered. Millions and millions of people were murdered. The only justice that's there is that every one of them who did the murdering got murdered. That's actually not true. There's a... the the. KGB's chief KGB NKVD GPU checkup. It's one organization just rebranded. Their chief executioner was a guy named Blokin. He probably killed 8,000 people one at a time with his own hands. He was the guy who did most of the execution down at the Katayan massacre when they massacred all these Polish officers. 23,000 bodies in there, and he shot most of them. Uh, or at least was was working. He had leather apron and leather gloves. He just just shot people for a living. He shot so many of them. Uh, 
Karsten M says so many people need to be in the basement of the Czechist. It's the most important movie I've ever seen. That's the only reason I'm writing this series is because of this movie called The Czechist. It's on YouTube, various levels of quality. The best level of visual quality has a English subtitles that are not good, but there's certainly enough to get you there. And by the way, you don't need a lot of subtitles to watch The Czechist, but you do need a strong stomach. And uh, there you go. So. Bart's Treasure says, uh, is a Russian joke. Guy in Soviet Russia walks into a store and says, don't tell me you're out of meat. And the clerk shouts back, we're not out of meat, we're out of fish. The place that's out of meat is across the street. Yeah, The Czechist is a difficult movie to watch because The Czechist doesn't pull any punches. The Czechist shows people getting stark naked, full frontal nudity, getting shot in the head, and they keep coming back to it. They keep coming back. And... I talk with the guys on the set. That's on the set for this thing is going to be insane. It's just they're just doing such a great job with this thing. And I said, since we have these LED walls in the back, you know, like on Mandalorian, not not quite as big, but they're there. I said I would like to have faces. The largest photo collection in the world belongs to KGB. They've got nine million headshots, and most of those people who had the headshots got shot in the head the 9 million faces. And I said, I would like to have those faces everywhere in virtually every shot, just dissolving, and they can never repeat, ever. Just to give you just a, just to give you a sense, right? Just like, one a second. For eight or nine episodes. I just want different faces. These people who looking in the camera, they know about to be killed. Ah, uh, yeah. Hmm. Natasha's biggest reaction in the U.S. Well, second biggest. I introduced her to John, uh, to uh, um, James Woods, and that was one of the only movies she'd ever seen from America. It was Once Upon a Time in America. So that was a big throw for her. But the second biggest was when we went out to um, we spent a weekend out in Santa Barbara and she saw the arches of this place that was on the opening to the show Santa Barbara and they all used to watch Santa Barbara back there so that's a big kick. All right, I swore I'd be doing questions and I swore I'd be doing questions an hour and ten minutes ago so here we go. Let's do some questions. Why don't we do some questions? I'm going to take care of the paying customers first uh, because that's how capitalism works and that's the only thing I can think of that's fair. Uh... A lot of people saying that Tim Cast uh, just ended or was on, and 30,000 people, 40,000 people said he was kind of angry. Uh, I saw Odin's, I've never met Tim, never talked to him. I don't listen to much of him at all. I don't listen to much of anybody. But I saw, uh, I listened to a lot of Odin's men because it's entertainment, not politics, it's not commentary in that sense. And he was the one that told me that uh, Tim had a real. He he said it was an on-camera meltdown where somebody said, I'm going to cancel my membership or something. And and he said, you know, Odin's, JT saying, shouldn't treat your customers that way. And he's right. But I'll tell you one thing. If there's one thing I understand, it's that kind of, that kind of thing. 
you know, if you don't do this, then I'll do. Okay. Uh, anyway, we don't have that many members, but ours are of a much higher quality. We are the F15s of of membership, and they are the MiG 21s. Something to keep in mind out there, you uh, Eagle drivers. All right, here we go. Let's go. Stressful Lounge 2923. Yeah, that's us. Let's see, Jacob Belchak. Hail Bill. Hail Jacob. I wanted to post a follow-up question last week. I asked what ideas from the left deserve to be preserved in case you don't remember. Use the example last week concerning left's argument for gay marriage contrasted it with the modern transmania. That particular statement that jumped out at me was that the argument for gay marriages was that homosexuals should be able to get married just like everybody else. To me, this is part of the left's redefinition game. I agree. This is why it was a this is why it was a tough issue uh, for me because yes, you're redefining it. Yes, you're eroding a lot of boundaries. Yes, you're making something that was never it. It yes, all of that versus let people do what they want to in their own time on their own I don't get to tell you how you live your life because I don't want you to tell me how to live mine and by the way I didn't de I didn't determine the outcome of that I just said that that issue's been decided and and there it is uh, to me this is part of the left's redefinition game absolutely don't let me get to the word cis in a minute I fundamentally reject the premise that a man can love a man the same way that a woman loves a woman in addition this is the first step in establishing the idea that the sexes are not only equal but interchangeable when marriage meant the unique relationship between husband and wife and only that, it reinforced the idea that men and women are distinct separate entities. Once that goes away, the distinction blurs. In a homosexual relationship of either type, one of the parties must by necessity assume the role that is antithetical to that particular sex. It's in the name. Gay marriage simply isn't marriage, just like everybody else's because everybody else's marries the opposite sex. The left said it was the same, but it isn't, and it never will be. Once you begin to bend men and women out of their husband and wife social roles, is it any wonder that the next step is to bend them out of their biological differences too? What are your thoughts? Love your work regardless. You are a Miami planetarium to me. That is the strangest and maybe coolest compliment I've ever gotten. Um, all right, so let's see what we got here. I, I cannot verify your statement that, that men can't love each other the way that men and women do or that women can't love each other the way that I, I can't verify it I'm not saying you're wrong I'm just saying I can't verify it that's up in the air it's debatable however I think the, the way we should have handled that is we should be able to say look what you do like I said it's, the answer to this is get the government out of marriage they're the ones that put the Democrats put government into marriage. They're the ones that meant you have to go get a marriage license from the state. Those are the Democrats that did that. So white people couldn't marry black people. That's just what happened. That's why it's there. Just get it out there. James DeLorenzo says I'm pro homosexuality. I'm not pro homosexuality. I'm just pro. I'm just pro being left alone. So long as you're not hurting anybody else. There are three laws, right? Don't hurt somebody. Don't take their stuff and do what you promise you're going to do. I think you have those three laws, you're fine. So I'm not I'm not pro-homosexuality, I'm not anti-homosexuality. It's none of my business. I have a concern when those public when those private affairs get out in the public sector start affecting my nose. Now I've got uh now I've now I've got a, a dog in this hunt. Uh I um I worked at the Miami Planetarium and I thought it's not conservatism. 
Uh, well, then I guess it's not conservatism. Uh, if if conservatism is is stamping out homosexuality and um, busting into people's houses to tell them what they can do and not do in their own lives, then I don't know what you would call that. I would call that authoritarianism. Um, so, uh, oh, Clint B says we put marriage into the government into marriage when Utah wanted into the union. So look, this is how I think it should work, right? If you, I don't. If, if Utah wants polygamy, and I know it's not legal there anymore, but if they wanted it to be legal, then that, that's Utah's business. If you don't like it, don't live in Utah. Um, I I started working in the planetarium when I was 13 or 14, and I had always been, I had always been, uh, you know, interested in making movies and stories and stuff. And there was a really excellent, excellent top-rate theater at uh, the, the Museum of Science, it used to be in the auditorium. It was the crummiest house I've ever been in, but they had a great theater called Players Theater there. They worked three or four years out of the auditorium. The Miami Museum of Science, that was their stage, and when you were off stage, you were outside. So if you're off stage, then you are in the rain. And so I would hold umbrellas over people, and I just I just loved them. I loved, I loved being around theater people. I loved all of it. They treated me like an adult. Uh, and And they were interesting, and they were fun, and they were cool. Half of them were gay. Not not one of them ever made the slightest. I just didn't know who, and I, I had no way of knowing. So, I just plain, um, I just have been around them since, you know, I was fifteen, and I look at homosexuals the way I look at everybody else. Some of them are horrible people, and some of them are not, and I look at them as individuals. So that's what I got out of it. Um, as far as what they do in their own time is concerned, like I said, in my view of leave everybody alone and get the government out of your life, I say let them do whatever they want to do unless it starts to affect my life, which brings us to the trans thing because that's really where the issue is today. It's a really excellent point, and I agree with this point, that, that I don't think it should have been called marriage. I think I think marriage is a man and a woman, and I think that the that the answer should have been complete legal equality for partnerships or whatever you want to call it. They, they took the word gay. They completely own the word gay. You can't use the word gay in its original meaning, meaning being lighthearted. How did you do? Did you have a good time? Oh, yes, it was very gay. They own it. It's gone. They, they should have taken some other word and made it their own and had full legal equality. I think that would have been the that would have been, for me, the optimal outcome in terms of my value system. But they didn't look at it that way. Um, they wanted the word marriage. And that's that's when I started to get a little suspicious, you know. That's that's where my antenna went up. It's like, what is it about marriage that you have to have, right? You know, no one's oppressing you. I certainly think that having your own legal partnerships is no legally different than married couples. I think you should be able to file joint fact, tax returns, insurance, all that stuff. But the word marriage has a meaning. And when you define man and woman out of the word meaning, out of the word marriage, then you start to have some of the problems that we're having together. Um, and now we're at the point where the most fundamental 
basic, obvious, biological fact available to us is being challenged. I saw some guy talking about this yesterday. I had this thought quite a while ago, but he, he it was a, a black guy. He was saying transracialism is a much more believable thing than transsexualism, transgenderism, because race is a fact, a spectrum, right? There is, there are no two people have the exact same skin color. Well, I guess when you have billions of people, they probably do, but you get the point, right? And I see some of these people who are the most advocate, the most loud advocates for, um, for, uh, you know, uh, reparations, black, uh, black grievance studies, and so on. And I said, looking at you, and I'm thinking you're probably more than fifty percent white yourself. Key and Peel, for example, who I think are brilliantly funny do a lot of these kind of white racist kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, like this is how white racists uh, oppress uh, black people. They do it kind of seriously as part of their comedy. And I want to say to both Key and Peel, you guys are the richest, whitest black people I've ever seen. You, you're both real close to being white people. So that is a spectrum, right? That, that is a spectrum. Biology is not a spectrum. So what you find is, as, as the case with marriage, these people are masters of rhetoric. And so they have defined, they have set up the argument so that we lose once we start going into it. Um, uh, Renzoom, if you like, if you want to bring that question back on Monday, I'd love to talk about that. Do you have any tips for writing screenplays? Uh, Monday night's the show I try to do pop culture on. I've missed four out of five, but I've been not feeling well. Much better now. Expecting to be back on Monday. Um, so, so, um, so here, where did it go? Oh, the trans thing, right? So here's what's going on when you hear the trans activists say, cis, you're cisgendered, you're cis male, you're cis female. They say you were assigned at birth. That's an outright joke. Yeah, I was assigned female at birth. I'm really trans man, so I'm really a man. Although I was assigned female at birth, they'll say, you weren't assigned female at birth. It's not like a doctor flipped a coin and decided what your sex is. He didn't assign you your sex. He, he wrote down on the paper the sex that you were. You weren't assigned at birth. By you saying that you were assigned at birth, you make it sound like it is something that could be changed. You sounded like it was a doctor who just made a off-the-cuff, shot-in-the-dark kind of guess and, and guessed wrong about you, turned out, right? Just assign me the wrong sex. No, he did, the doctor didn't assign you anything, right? The doctor didn't assign you anything. The doctor looked at what you were and put that form down on his piece of paper. Signed at birth. Here's why, here's why the word cis is so, is so, has to be fought tooth and nail. And women are the ones that are carrying this fight, uh, not just not just conservative women. Virtually all women are really getting down on this thing now because they're basically realizing that what the trans movement is, they're trying to hijack women's rights and all the rest of it. So when they hear cis women or chest feeder or uterus owners or that kind of gobbledygook, they seem to they seem to uh, get it. Let me tell you what let me tell you what cis is there for, okay? So for those of you who are not up on current events, the trans community, which is trying to turn the entire morality of the world into their morality, insists that there are transsexuals and then there are heteronormative people 
that's cis. You're a cis male, that means you're not a trans male. And that's why they're so determined to use this word, because if they can convince you that you are cis, then cis and trans are just two different two different things, right? I'm trans, you're cis. These are the two categories. It's no longer male and female anymore, you see. If you get that word, if you can work the word cis into it, now it's not about male and female. Now it's about cis and trans. And then they get to have anything they want to. So whenever you hear them say cis, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, I'm a member of one group and you're a member of another group. No. I talked about this person on the last show. My favorite YouTube channel now is called The Offensive Tranny. It is a transsexual man, meaning a biological woman. I stumbled upon the, the, the channel and the reason I stayed was the first thing out of this person's mouth looks like an artistic boy. First thing out of their mouth was this person's, look, I'm a trans male, okay? What does that mean? That means I'm a biological female with a serious mental health issue. What? That's, yeah, and, 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 and just goes on and on and on. Marcus, I think name is. Yeah, I'm, I'm a person who was born with a, with a psychological defect called gender dysphoria. And my, my transition is not about looking different. I, I, want to, I want to pass. Marcus said that after he had the surgery, top surgery, I think, and all the hormones and all the rest of it, he didn't go into a men's restroom he didn't go into any public restrooms apparently until he felt like until he felt like nobody would notice. He said that's what transsexuals are. They don't want to stand out. The idea of being a, a the idea of calling yourself a woman by dressing up in a woman's dress and then having a beard and lipstick. He says that's not trans. That's that's cosplay. That's 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 transvestitism, not transsexualism. And, he, and, and I think to his credit, he says, that's fine. You know, there have been, been men dressing up as women forever. Um, but anyway, oh, you know what, Jamie? Is Jamie, is this the same Jamie from before? Bill picks out an isolated case and therefore thinks we don't need to contem condemn trans generally. That's not conservative. You're scared to condemn them. Can somebody ban him, please? I'm just tired of listening to this crap from him. I think this is our, our Chinese bot from a couple of times ago. I'm just sick and tired of listening to this crap, Okay. Just condemn trams already? Well, I won't condemn them. I won't condemn them, okay? Because it's not my business to tell other people how to live their lives. That's what Nazis do. That's what you do. And if we have a moderator there, I'd like this guy to go away now, please. I've had enough of this bullshit from this guy for like two episodes. I'm just tired of seeing it. I just want him off. I don't need that kind of people in my audience. I don't need that kind of attitude in my audience. Just plain bump him. Anybody there? Yes, banning is right. Exactly. LOL yourself into 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 obscurity. I've had enough of you. I'm the only one? Okay, well, let me take care of this then. Hang on one second. Because I have had enough of this stuff. It's not a question of disagreeing. We have disagreements here all the time, right? This this kind of thing. I'm a liberal? Okay, I'm a liberal. That's that's what I am. Uh, and um, I'm not, I can't just ignore him because it just keeps showing up. Right, it just keeps showing up. I can't ignore him. I'm tired of I'm tired of him hijacking everything in this room because he's contrary to everything I say automatically, and uh, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pull the trigger on this. I'm just had enough of it. I'm sick of it. Really, really, really sick of it. It's just completely. It's attention seeking, like any other drama queen.
virtue signaling left winger. So you have a nice trip there, Jamie. And you go ahead and believe whatever you want to. You just don't get to believe it here in front of my audience. So have a nice day. Oh, there it is. Hang on a minute. This is tough because it's moving all the time. Hang on. I don't want to delete. I don't want to log out the wrong person. Hang on a second. Yeah, I don't do this very often because I don't generally run into people that are this big of a dipshit. Generally speaking, uh, we uh, are a pretty good group of people. And then, I don't want him timed out. I just want him gone. I'll see if that works. Uh, yeah, bye-bye. Um, so, um, anyway, this is what uh, this is what this what this uh, person was saying. They were speaking the truth. That's why I like them. I like them because they're speaking the truth. Of all the people I've seen get angry about this whole grooming trans thing, this whole fake trans things, you know, these these drag queens reading reading sessions for kids. He gets this 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 guy, this guy who, who has this channel called the um, uh, what is it? the to say the offensive training. He is more angry at these people that are trying to corrupt kids and all of these teachers and all the rest. He's more angry than any of us I've seen. He says this is exactly exactly what we have been fighting against. So there you go. Uh, so anyway, back to the question here. Sorry about that delay. Hopefully we won't have to deal with that again. And if so, we'll just pull out the big bang, bam hanger and we'll deal with it that way. Uh, where'd he go? Here it is. Okay, so because there's a lot of stuff in this question that Jacob asked that I think is really important. Yeah, so so yes, you're right. You, you can define a way. Um, uh, it's Eric Blake showing up as hard-boiled entertainment. Hey, guess what, Eric? I've been looking forward to seeing you there. I haven't seen Marush in a while. Uh, I just wanted to say, Eric, uh, publicly, uh, in front of everybody, I'll save this for Monday. I'll probably see it on Monday again, too. Looks like you were right, and I was wrong. Um, Avatar has made $2 billion. I didn't think it would do that, but it did. Uh, so you were right. You said it would get there. I didn't think it had a chance, but I heard the other day that it did. So when somebody's right and I'm wrong, I'm first person out of the gate to say that. Oh, what's up with that reptilian in the back? It's not a reptilian. That's a starship captain. He just, he's just a, he's a, he's a, you know, a, You see a sharpened blade there. His little, he's got that little obsidian blade. Yeah, that's a that's a Gorn. Um, so, um, let's see. I guess that's most of it. Look, the you 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 know, especially when we're talking about this issue, <laughs> it's kind of a nice pun, you know. But politics makes strange bedfellows sometimes. Um, and 
and I have said this before, and I think this is a, a pretty good analogy, you know, it's not just politics. People, all people, every person, they're kind of like a, like a, a Rubik's Cube. Okay, what I mean by that is, if you, if you look at it and you see green, right, turn it around enough and then you can make it see blue. What I mean by that is, so I'm dead set against progressivism. I think it's just absolutely the most destructive, heinous, awful philosophy in the world. But I might find myself at a football game, although, who am I kidding? You're never going to see a real progressive at a football game. Let's just pretend. If I'm at a football game and I'm and I'm sitting on the Gator side and we're looking out at the uh, Florida State side, then it's Gators versus Seminoles. And that's the division, Gators versus Seminoles. And you can twist, and you don't have to even twist anything. You just, pre, you, you find different allies based on different things. People who, who are dead set against each other in one thing are completely agreeing on something else. And so I'm in the position where it's like, I say, hey, look, take, take our allies where you can find them. The reason I consider this person to be an ally is not because, is because this person is not saying anything I disagree with, right? The, the, the reason I became a fan of the channel was th this person led off by saying, I am a biological female trying to live my life as a male. I'm not a man, I'm not a male. I cannot be a father. And it's because I have a mental illness. I, I can get along with people like that. That's just fine with me. Absolutely fine with me. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, Paul, a lot of people saying the new avatar was just okay. Yeah, it was okay. It was all right. You know, it was, it was pretty. It was, it, the script was worse than the original, but it was, you know, it's okay. All right, so moving on here. Chris Taylor. Oh, boy, this is a long one. Let me just scan it here. It's essentially a, a long defense of Buzz Aldrin and, and talking about all the things that Aldrin accomplished. I never said that Buzz Aldrin wasn't... Uh, an absolute genius and a key part of the space program. I just said he wasn't a nice guy. He, I know people who have dealt with him and had them say that he was charging people who had worked volunteer time on his project, charging people five bucks or 10 bucks for their autograph. I heard that from a number of people, but that's not to take anything away from what Buzz did. I'm one of those people who's capable of saying and realizing that people can do great things and still have personality flaws. Chuck Yeager, was an astonishing test pilot. He was also an extremely unpleasant guy. Look, this place is, a, is my entire office is a is a is a Star Trek museum, right? It's a Star Trek museum, and one, two, three, at least three life-size wall cutouts like this are are pictures of James T. Kirk because I think James T. Kirk is my is my ultimate hero character. And he's my ultimate hero character because of the way that Bill Shatner played him. And Bill Shatner is one of the worst people in the world. He's just a horrible, horrible, horrible person. I've worked with him twice, briefly, 
And I've never heard anybody say anything good about him. He's just plain awful. And that doesn't affect my uh, love for the character. It just affects how it, it doesn't affect how I feel about James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. It affects how I feel about Bill Shatner. Um, Roy Hamill says, uh, Bill, why would you, why on earth would you want Klaus Schwab hanging out behind you like that? I, I find that kind of a ridiculous comment. I think, I don't, I don't think Klaus Schwab comes off nearly as human as this uh, creature behind me in the corner here. So yeah, so that's okay. So, so look, Chris, if you, you list a, a bunch of things saying that uh, that Aldrin did, and I suppose I should have mentioned those more because, look, the, the, Buzz Aldrin was called Doctor Rendezvous. Let me tell you two stories about Buzz Aldrin that I didn't. I don't think I noticed them on this thing, but look, look, just just so we're so we're clear on this. Uh, what do I think of George Takai and the one-sided feud with Shatner? I think George Takai is a is the is the worst character in Star Trek history. No, that's not true. Wesley Crusher is the worst character, and I'm talking about anything not on the Star Trek Discovery because that's not even Star Trek. Uh, I <laughs> who was I just talking about? Aldrin. I'm going to write this down. I don't want to forget it. I'm going to go on a small Takai uh, journey, and I don't want to forget to come back to Aldrin because Aldrin deserves it, and I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression. Where did I put my writing stick? Oh, here it is. All right. So here's what I think about George Takai. I first ran into Star Trek. Star Trek came, uh, was on the year 66, 67, 68. And I was in Bermuda at that time. I was watching Lost in Space in Bermuda, but I, there wasn't Star Trek. I didn't even know about Star Trek. One of the kids that I used to play with was uh, from uh, the Navy base. He told me about this thing called Star Trek. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know what it was until I came to Florida in 1970, so I was 11. Um, and... Uh, and when I started watching Star Trek, so I was 11, 12, 13, something like that. Actually, I ran a Star Trek fan club out of the Miami Planetarium. We ran 16 millimeter prints of the episodes this before the internet and before they were rerunning. You could not see an old episode of Star Trek, except we could get them on 16 millimeter films and project them up on the Planetarium Dome. So I got my, I got my uh, Star Trek uh, original series chops and street cred, right? Um, so... Uh, another note. Right. So when I first watched, when I first watched Star Trek, I was eleven or twelve, and I I was not old enough to know what it was about George Takai that just I found a little off. I couldn't put my finger on it, and looking back on it now, I realize he's wearing more mus more mascara than an eyeshadow really eyeshadow than Nichelle Nichols is a lot more eyeshadow. I thought, it's just something a little odd about the guy, you know? And I just frankly thought he was just kind of a, you know, I, I, I didn't have anything against him. And then I saw him in that episode where, where he becomes the musketeer and stuff. It's something a little, something a little off about this. I, didn't, I wasn't even old enough to, to say there's something a little gay about this, but it's something off about him. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I just thought there was something off about him. Did I think he was a queer? Well, he dressed like a queer. And he was an actor like a queer. And um, 
So, yes, I suspect I thought he was a queer. Uh, but when he goes to war with Shatner, and when and when his complaints against Shatner are things like, well, he you know he he didn't give me enough attention, or um, or uh, he would say, um, hello there, time with Shell, who's new here, good to see. You. Uh, we're talking about all day, all day Star Trek and Shatner to kite feud, and all of his all of his problems with Shatner to me. I'm just going to come out and say it. All of his problems with Shatner to me sounded like the kind of things that you would say about somebody you had a crush on who didn't give you the time of day. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Um, and, and I just got that sense that he was just plain jealous. Now, I started this conversation by saying Bill Shatner is not a good guy. He's not. He's he's a terrible man. He's he's a he's an unbelievably narcissistic, mean-spirited, terrible guy. And that doesn't affect the way I uh it doesn't affect the way I feel about James D. Kirk, Captain of Starship Enterprise. And uh if you haven't seen Kevin Pollack's routine on recasting Star Trek, it's bloody marvelous. Um, James T. Kirk and Starship Enterprise. So anyway, uh, Kevin Sorbo. I know I know Kevin Sorbo pretty well, and and Sam Sorbo. Kevin is Kevin Kevin Sorbo is about the nicest guy you could ever hope to meet. He's the most regular, down to earth, nice guy you could ever want to meet. I used to see him all the time. Bruce Boxleitner is a really, really nice guy. Everybody I've met in the sh in, in entertainment business is a nice guy and fun to be around. With the exception of, um, Robert Davi, and I love Robert Davi. I love being around Robert Davi, but Robert Davi is not what I would call a nice guy. Okay. So it's easy to, you know, to, 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 to admire somebody's work and, and still say, I just don't think much of them as a person. So back to Aldrin. So three things about Aldrin that, um, that bear mentioning. First of all, uh, his nickname among the, um, among the astronauts, uh, especially after his Gemini mission, they called him Dr. Rendezvous. Buzz Aldrin could do the orbital calculations to match orbits in his head. And that is not an easy thing because everything about orbital mechanics is backwards of what you think. If you want to pass somebody, you have to slow down. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but that's how it works. If, you, if, you, if you've got something 100 miles ahead of you in orbit, the only way to catch it is to slow down. Because if you slow down, you go into a lower orbit. Lower orbit brings you around the corner faster. And then when you get a, enough ahead of him, then you have to start speeding up again and let him catch up to you. It's really, really, really difficult. Yeah, I want to talk about O'Keefe too. Um, so if you can hang on to that. So they called him Dr. Rendezvous because he could do the math in his head. And, he, and, and I don't mean just eyeball it. He could do the math in his head. First time chat from uh, RD2RX. So what about Andrew Clavin? Um, I'm sorry, that doesn't ring a bell. Uh, and Buzz is still alive. 
so so there was that aspect to him so he was so he was the perfect guy to have on Apollo 11 there would have been nobody else better to be in that module with with Neil Armstrong than Buzz Aldrin because Buzz Aldrin look one you can make a pretty I hadn't even thought about this until now but you can make a fairly compelling case that the reason that they didn't crash the Apollo 11 landing when their flight computer went out was because they had a flight computer standing next to Neil Armstrong and his name was Buzz Aldrin right he's just plain genius at that Second thing about Buzz Aldrin, when they first started doing spacewalks, they had a real problem, a real problem. American spacewalks. The, the first spacewalk was done on uh, Voskhod with uh, 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 Leonid, uh, 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 oh, come on. Oh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. I forgot, Soviet guy. They had a pop-out canvas airlock, and he and his suit pressurized when he was outside, and they damn near couldn't get him back in again. They they left him. He had like a pill or something. Uh, but but the Gemini capsule is like a convertible. Those just, just enormous doors that open, and you just sail out of there. They had to get. They had to tell Ed White, Ed, you have to come in now, Ed. He did the first American spacewalk. Leonov, thank you. Uh, Ed White's out there doing the uh, doing the spacewalk, and and they're saying NASA saying. He, you got to come in now. Just a few more minutes. You're taking a few more pictures. Ed. Uh, Bob Rass says, I forgot to buy my ticket for tonight's show earlier. Thank you, Bob, for that super chat, $20 super chat. It's very kind of you. So anyway, back to Aldrin. So Ed White goes out and he does a, you know, he's on a cable and he's got his little jet unit to go backwards and forwards. He's having a fun time. But what they when they started working outside in space, they started having a real problem. Americans did, and I guess the Russians did too. Well, Leonov nearly panicked. He, he couldn't get back into his ship. He was supposed to go in, let me get this straight. He came out head first. We think he was supposed to go back in feet first, but he was so overtaken by the experience, he tried to get in head first, got stuck in this inflatable airlock. They were gonna have to close the hatch and re-enter with him attached to it, and not, not pretty at all. And by the way, he's weightless the whole time, but I, but I have heard, it was in the Apollo thing I did, when they got back to the Earth, and gravity was there. When Leonov stood up, he had water in his boots up to his knees, and that was sweat. He'd sweat enough to fill that suit to his knees. He damn near died up there. Um, but what we were finding was our guys, too, were getting very disoriented. They didn't know what to do. Their eyes and their ears were telling them different things. You'd have one guy upside down. Everything's upside down. Sometimes you have two guys. They were really, really disoriented. And Buzz Aldrin was the only astronaut out there who had actually had a, a fair background as a scuba diver. And he said, why don't we just train underwater? It's essentially exactly the same. You, you, you don't have to worry about gravity because you have buoyancy. Why don't we train underwater? It's virtually identical to weightlessness. And everybody looks around and goes, huh? and he solved the problem. We've never, um, you know, a Chinese little spy balloon flying around. I don't know what it is. Some little bug. It's okay. It's, it's, a, it's visitation of some kind. Proof of uh, ghosts. I've got the little ghost, the little ghost detector. So, so that's the, the second thing he did, right? He, he basically overcame that almost instinctual. Um, thank you very much for that. Uh, time with Shell. Bill, I'm a millennial. I always thought we landed on the moon. I always thought we landed on the moon until I, I maybe thought I didn't 
thought we didn't land on the moon until I came across your documentary, Apollo, what we saw. I really appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Um, because it's all incremental, right? There's nothing about Apollo 11 that's amazing compared to Apollo 10. It's amazing compared to, hey, let's go to the moon, but compared to Apollo 10, it's not. Wow. Uh, Grim Ben says, my dad flew a torpedo bomber in the Pacific night missions, flying low, compass maps, flashlight, pencil, paper, brass balls. We got that right. God rest his soul. God rest his soul is right too. Uh, Grim, um, anything you can add to that? I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, like to hear more about it. I know the Pacific War very well. Uh, Bart's Trader said, Buzz also came up with the idea for a system of handholds. So so one could do work and tasks in space without the exhaustion. Yes, so those are two of the great things that, that Buzz Aldrin did. But the best thing that Buzz Aldrin ever did was somebody came up to him and said, you're lying about the moon landing. He punched the guy in the face. That was, that was Buzz's, that was, that was the greatest example of, uh, of steely-eyed missile manliness that, that you're ever going to run across. So I, I have enormous respect for him. He's just not a he's just not a good guy. He's not a nice guy. When I say good guy, I mean well, I mean good guy. He's not a it's not just he's not a nice guy. I don't think he's a good guy either. But that's okay. I got a couple super chats here. Hang on a second. Uh, Carlos DLT says, uh, "What are your thoughts on the rare earth hypothesis?" I'm a huge champion of that. I've talked about that before. If you want to come back on Monday, we'll talk about that till the cows come home. And then one from uh, <coughs> excuse me, Lacto ninety two, and said, watching a lot of Clint Walker's old movies and shows genuinely one of the nicest people in Hollywood I've ever seen. How was he not Superman? I don't know. Um, everybody from that period were just tremendous, tremendous gentlemen. Um, by the way, uh, yeah, I think, I, I think I'm caught up. Um, I'm seeing this in the last week or two, and now I'm seeing it everywhere. People are using AI images, and they're doing, oh, I'll show you one. No, I won't show you one. Um, they're doing Star Wars as a 1940s film noir thing or or Star Wars as a 80s adventure thing, and the AI is putting these images together. It's just astonishing, just astonishing. Um, yeah, John Pershing says uh, Kubrick was uh, hired to fake the moon landings. He just insisted on doing it on site. Um, the... Uh, uh, my second favorite comedy team, Mitchell and Webb, uh, they're not the folks that did Queer, that would be um, Harry and Paul, but Mitchell and Webb were the ones that came up with Vectron. And um, they do a conspiracy thing where they're in a dark room figuring out how to do this, and they're saying, so how are we going to fake this moon landing? And um, the woman says, well, we obviously have a launch pad, and it's an open launch pad, so we going to need to build a really gigantic big honking rocket. Will that save us money? No, it's going to pretty much cost us. So we have to buy the big rocket anyway. Yeah. And and because otherwise, what are people going to say? You know, it's got to, if you're going to fake them out and do it. So they so eventually they come to the conclusion that the most cost of, cost effective way to fake the moon landing would be to shoot it on the moon. And that's actually true. Pretty much exactly. All right, let me get another question or two or three down here. And then I will go back to my writing yeah. world and by the way look it, it, I just came back to the buzz question let me add one, one more thing about buzz okay uh, 
I don't know if Buzz was always the way he is, but if anybody ever had a good excuse to go nuts, I mean really nuts, I, I don't see how you top Buzz Aldrin on that one. Uh, I have heard from reliable sources that his father was unbelievably driven in the same way that Brian Wilson's was, and and that basically when he when Buzz Aldrin comes back from landing on the moon, his dad essentially said, so, second man? Really? Second? Neil Armstrong wasn't the first man to land on the moon. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon simultaneously. Neil Armstrong was the first guy to walk on the moon. He was the first guy to land on the moon. And one of the things I like most, I hadn't thought about it at all, one of the things I like most about that uh, an Apollo 11 series was that Armstrong's name is all over the moon landing. First man on the moon, Neil Armstrong, first man on the moon. It's all Armstrong, Armstrong, Armstrong. But virtually every picture, every picture you've ever seen, unless you really go digging, of the first moon landing is Aldrin. I always thought that was a nice balance. Armstrong, 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 Armstrong. But every picture of guys on the moon in the first moon landing is Aldrin. It's a picture of Aldrin. Um, so, anyway. Uh, back to where we were here. Getting a little, getting a little blown out here. I might have to call it after this one. I think I've still got a lot to do tonight. Whoa. I'll do two anyway. Eli Nor. Hi, Eli. Hello, Mr. Whittle. Please call me Bill. Do you have any comments on NASA and DARPA testing nuclear thermal rockets? Are they feasible, and do you think Musk will follow suit? I'm not convinced NASA would be in any hurry to build them unless someone in the private sector also begins testing that option, as, it, as is often the result with government-funded project. I'm glad you asked me that, Eli. As it turns out, I would describe myself as a bit of an expert on, on solid-core nuclear rockets because of the research I did for a script called Aurora. So there's a, there's a very, very important variable in spaceflight, and it's called specific impulse. It's not exactly miles per gallon. It's a little bit like that. Specific impulse basically says how much energy can you get out of a unit of fuel. It, in other words, what design, if you take the space shuttle main engines, for example, that includes all the oxidizer and the fuel it's using and all the rest, but when, when that whole system is in place, how much thrust do you get? How much delta V do you get out of a unit of fuel, meaning propellant, fuel and oxidizer, whatever the case may be? That's called specific impulse. And the higher the number, the more efficient the rocket is, and the farther you can go with the same amount of fuel, or you can go at the same rate with less fuel, right? So it's not exactly fuel efficiency, but that's a pretty decent way to think about it as a general rule. So the specific impulse, the fuel efficiency, the miles per gallon, right? The fuel efficiency of a, of a uh, Saturn V uh, main engine, F5 uh, engine, uh, is 250. 250 seconds of specific impulse. That's a chemical rocket. The space shuttle main engines had an ISP of 450. They were almost twice as efficient as the, as the um, first stage Saturn V rockets. I don't think you get above 500, 500 or 600 under any circumstances with chemical engines because what you're really dealing with, with here is how hot can you make something? That's what it really is all about. Because you're, you're, 
all the, all you're dealing with in space is the expansion of gas, right? You're, you're you're pushing something out of the back of the rocket, and the 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 more energetic that pushes, the the more thrust you get. Chemicals combining can get hot, but they can only get so hot, right? That's there's a limit to how hot they can get. A nuclear reactor can get much hotter. Now. In the 1960s, as with everything else, we did everything we need to do 60 years ago, and then we just sat on it and let the left take over everything because of the planet and because of nuclear power is bad. And we just we we could have been on we could have been on Mars for 30 years now, or 40 years really, if we hadn't just let the left take over the politics of it. But in the 60s, there was a program called NERVA. Nuclear engine, Irva, and they, and they did. Um, I had all these numbers in my head. They built, I want to say at least twenty individual rocket engines, of various designs, as pretty much the same design, but various uh, capabilities. And uh, Sad Wings Raging has it exactly right. It was out at uh, Project Pluto at Jackass Flats, Nevada. That's where they did it. And so you don't get a simpler engine than a, than a solid core nuclear rocket engine, which is the simplest engine, rocket engine there is to build. So here's basically how that works. Instead of all of these super complicated pumps, combustion chambers, all these other things that have to work to bring these two chemicals together, or the chemical and the, the, the hydrogen and the oxygen, or the kerosene and the oxygen, whatever it is, instead of all that stuff, it doesn't matter. You're going to take some mass, take water, it's not the most efficient one, but Let's just say for the example, right? And what you do is you just take a hunk of uranium rods like you would have in a regular nuclear reactor, and essentially you just have holes in it. You run the fuel through those holes, and the fuel gets so hot being exposed to the uranium that the expansion of the gas out the back end is pretty nearly double what you would get on a conventional chemical rocket. So so a solid core nuclear rocket has an ISP, if I remember correctly, in the vicinity of 750, 800, 850, maybe 900, right? So it is twice as efficient and, and you don't have to carry oxidizer. For every pound of fuel you carry for a, a chemical rocket, you got to carry oxidizer. You can't, things won't burn in space. You need oxygen. So you have liquid oxygen. So you're basically carrying two fuel tanks to get where you want to go, and both of those things weigh what they want to weigh. And with a nuclear rocket, you don't need two separate fuel tanks, you just need mass. So the, the actual fuel, if you want to be precise about this, it's important to be precise sometimes, a nuclear rocket's fuel is not the stuff that's sloshing around in the tanks. Technically speaking, the fuel is the uranium in the core. That stuff is reaction mass, it's propellant but it's reaction mass. It's just stuff to shoot out the back of the rocket. I want to say methane is better than water, and I think hydrogen is better than methane in terms of liquid methane and liquid hydrogen in terms of efficiency. Okay? So it's it's twice as effective as, as, um, as, a, as a chemical rocket, but that's not good enough. Thank you very much for that, Dave Olson. Nuclear engine for rocket vehicle application. And Nerva was the Greek goddess of wisdom, not Minerva, goddess of something. Anyway, so Project Nerva's out there in Jackass Splats, and they built something like 23 of these individual engines. Started small, built bigger ones, different kind of variations on the design. They're all solid core nuclear rockets. 
I did a ton of research on this. They can only hit an ISP of around 800 or so, somewhere in that vicinity, because even the exposure to the nuclear fuel only gets it so hot. You can't get any hotter than that, because if you did, you would melt the engine. You would melt the container that the uranium is in. You can get the uranium up to the melting, not technically the melting point, but you get to the uranium to the temperature of where if it gets any hotter, you're going to lose structural integrity on the actual engine, and that gets the ISP around 800. However, the next step is to do something called a, a pebble bed a nuclear reactor. Actually, let's go with, let's just skip that, gas core. Okay, if you take uranium, I want to say it's uranium tetra something or other. So uranium gas, radioactive gas. And if you inject that radioactive gas through a torus, a magnetic torus, it's plasma, so it'll, it'll be... Um, it'll react to magnetism, then the thing that's containing the heat is not the metal of the walls, it's the magnetic field. And since, and since that hot gas is not in direct contact with the metal structure of the engine, uh, a, a gas core nuclear rocket can get much hotter. And since it gets hotter without melting the engine, you take that same pound of water and gallon of water and push it through there, you get 2,000 maybe? 2,000 impulse, specific impulse. So that's basically saying that you are now 10 times more efficient than the Saturn V, which means that you can carry one-tenth of the fuel that the Saturn V has, or you can go 10 times faster than the Saturn V. These are approximations. You get the general idea. Right? So the problem with, with space flight is you've got to... Uranium tetrafluoride. Thank you very much for that, astronaut. So yeah, and, and um, Don Vickery says material science. So if you really want to go go places, material science would be nice. You find alloys that will that will withstand higher temperatures. That means you can get the core hotter, more thrust for the same amount of propellant mass. That's all good. The real problem is not, and I gave this a lot. I, I spent years thinking about this one. The real the real game changer is not the efficiency of the nuclear rocket, but the simplicity of it, I would say. Because the game changer is wilderness refueling. That's what makes it feasible or not. And here's what I mean by that. When we went to the moon, we had to have enough fuel in various stages, including the command module and service module. But in various stages, you had to carry enough fuel to get to the moon and you had to carry enough fuel to get back from the moon. You had to lift all of that off of the Earth's surface at the Kennedy Space Center under 1G gravity field, everything. The weight of the rockets, the weight of the stages, the weight of the LEM, the weight of the fuel on the LEM, the weight of the fuel in the command module, all of the stuff that you're going to get off of that pad has got to carry enough fuel to get you to the moon and then off the moon and then back to Earth again. Now, if you could refuel on the moon, you could save an awful lot of weight, which means you can go faster or bigger or some combination of both. So, that's an interesting, that's an interesting uh, comment, which I attempted to take, maybe bring it back on Monday. So, so here's the thing. If you, if you go to Mars, and you can't refuel on Mars, then you have to carry enough fuel 
to get you to Mars, and you also have to accelerate the fuel that you're not going to burn because you're going to need that fuel to get you back to Earth. So basically, if you're going to go to Mars and not refuel, you have to carry enough fuel to get the rocket going, then enough fuel to slow the rocket down at Mars, then enough fuel to get the rocket going again, and enough fuel to slow it back on the other end. So you got to carry essentially four times the amount of fuel that you need for a one-way trip, although the, the slowing down part is pretty much unavoidable. Now, you get a little benefit that every time you burn fuel, the vehicle gets lighter, so you need less fuel to get to get it to move, but generally speaking, it's a mess. So if you could, if you could simply, if you could simply refuel there, that's, that's the game changer. Not having to carry twice as much fuel as you needed to go someplace. And that's why uh, the, the, I don't know what Elon's, um, I, I don't know the details of his Mars plan, but certainly NASA's got a plan to, I think, I think, what is it, the last rover, is that, um, is it, it's uh, Perseverance? So Perseverance rover that we landed a couple of years ago with a helicopter, that rover is capable of taking soil samples, and I think it is expected to transfer it to a vehicle that will then land near where it is, and it'll put the soil samples in that, and that thing's going to shoot it back to Earth, and that thing will arrive on the Mars in 2030 or something. And this is the kind of level of progress I'm so used to now. I just want Elon just to go. Um, hey, Caledon, good, good to see you too. Thank you. Um, so that's that's the big part of the of the issue. So the, the, that was the issue about the nuclear rockets. Look, the problem is not nuclear rockets. We can build rockets that can get us across the solar system. This business of five years to Jupiter, you know, to get a probe to Jupiter, five years is just ridiculous. It's absurd. We could be at Jupiter in three weeks if we wanted to be, right? It's just a question of a curiosity preceded perseverance. Um, it's just a question of, it's not like we don't have the technology. It's that the left will not let us launch anything that has the word nuclear in it because they're perpetual ignorant cowards. They have no understanding of anything. They damn near canceled the Cassini mission because they started calling it the Cassini warhead because they had a tiny little radio thermal generator, RTG. It's not even a reactor, really. It's just a little piece of little piece of radioactive uh, fuel, and they run a, 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 a liquid around it, and it generates heat and runs a turbine. You get electricity forever. You can't get solar cells out there. I think solar cells are a waste here. I, I think I think solar power, as a general rule, where we are now is essentially, stop dicking around. Give me a reactor. Um, and the nice thing about the nuclear rocket, by the way, is that when it's idling, it's generating electricity. So you get a you get a big win out of that too. You don't have to carry all these stupid fuel cells or any of the rest of this garbage. So, so it's not a question of gee, can can Musk get a nuclear rocket built? It's can he get it launched? And I tell you, man, I, I have a I have a feeling about this. I really think um, I have a, a bad feeling that Musk is going to be forced out of the United States, not politically, but because because the regulations will just become the biggest obstacle to what he wants to do. It's no longer an engineering problem. It's a political problem. I think I think it's entirely likely that he will just say, look, the, the requirements that the FAA and NASA is putting on us on every launch and all of this stuff is just, it's just, 
they're trying to keep us from going and and so we're gonna i'm gonna go buy an island someplace i'm gonna buy an island in the pacific and then we'll we'll launch from there and if he did that i would i would raise my hand and go i think that'd be an awesome thing to do um but that's really the issue now our our, our uh we have a question that's right next to that actually Look, if he if he's going to launch from the Republic of Texas, I will. The second I hear the word Republic of Texas, I'm I'm in the Republic of Texas, uh, and I might point out that I'm already an honorary citizen of the Republic of Texas, bestowed upon me by Ted Cruz in person, who signed my documents. So there you go. Uh, so uh, right after it is, hey Bill, here's SpaceX fully completed for the full static fire of Booster Seven. Uh, Twitter link to a drone shot above the booster, and it's. Is that all the engines? February 9th. I saw some footage earlier, but I don't know if it was all the engines. I thought it was just nine. Did they get them? They get all, well, I'm going to find out. They get all 33 going? Oh, yeah. I don't think that's all of them. But in any event... Wow. Uh, anyway, um, Musk is going because he's taking it seriously and he's not afraid to spend money. He's not afraid to blow things up. He's the only person out there that's even in the race. He He's 30 years ahead of any other competitor that I've seen said this before the thing is to set up a prize you if you took a relatively low amount of money for space exploration so you took 50 100 million dollars you put a prize out there for 100 million dollars man on the moon and back again you get it done you get it done effectively and quickly i think i'm going to wrap up here because i still have a number of things to do including editing and posting our latest video and all the rest of that stuff uh Oh, hang on. Let's uh, take this one from Cody Fett. Because I did happen to look into this. Uh, greetings, Bill. I'm, unless I'm reading things wrong, my question request from last week got lost in the shuffle, so I'll say it again. Can we get at least one white pill story? Good news to keep your spirits up. Oh, okay. Thank you. In the event that my hearing your answer got lost in the shuffle, I'll ask this question instead. What are some of your favorite Civil War stories? Yes, I finally watched that Razor Fist video recommended here a few weeks ago. I found it to be vacuous and slanderous. Just how The Last Jedi finally got to me to read the Thrawn trilogy, which actually lives up to the hype, by the way. However, this video has gotten me to go down a Civil War history rabbit hole. Yeah, I, I saw Razor Fist's uh, video. Uh, I never really listened to Razor Fist at all before. Uh, I, found, I found the video to be completely full of holes and if i understand the meta argument correctly he's saying the civil war wasn't fought about slavery it was fought about tariffs uh, and uh i was going to do a response to that and i still may but any any look it's easy to criticize what actually happened and you can find endless things to criticize about what actually happened the problem is you don't nobody ever talks about what 
you could say if it didn't happen. O'Keefe, I want to talk about O'Keefe. What, in other words, if your argument is that Lincoln's a tyrant and that the whole thing was just, you know, just an incredible power grab and blah, 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 then let's grant you the case. Let's say that you're right. And let's say that Lincoln shouldn't have done any of those things. Or let's say that Lincoln, who was apparently the worst man who ever lived, never got elected. Let's just say that, that your argument that Lincoln is the greatest tyrant in American history is true. And let's just say somebody went back instead of shooting Hitler, they shot Lincoln. Where does that leave you, Razor Fist? I mean, where does it leave you? If, if you want to say it's the war of northern aggression and you want to just say the South should have just seceded, okay, what are the consequences of that? The first consequence of that is you've still got 8, 10, 11 million people being held as slaves on the North American continent. I'm against that, personally. That's my personal take on that. Uh, and then you also have the problem of if you think that that war, look, you either, you either fight to keep them in or you let them go. If you let them go, you've got two extremely aggressive American nations on, on the same continent sharing a border. So that war, that civil war is going to happen. It's not going to be a civil war if you let them go. It's going to be another war. And if that war is as bloody as it was in 1865, try to imagine what would happen when that war was fought in 1920. Or, or or 50. One or the other, that's going to go, right? It's going to go. And so you, slavery may have just faded away. Look, one of his arguments was, and this is, this is just plain, I, I can't tell if this is him just not thinking it through, but because it's so obvious to me that I got to just realize it. I just think it's intentionally misleading. He says, look, we could have just bought the slaves like we did. England brought, bought the slaves. England bought their slaves, and there was no civil war, and there was no slavery, and blah, blah. We should have done that. We didn't have to go start this war with the South, Razorfist says. I don't know how many black slaves there were in Great Britain at the time, but it wasn't a whole lot. It was a microscopic fraction of, of, of home servants, right? The total value the economic value of the slaves in the South in America in 1865 was greater than the economic value of all of the railroads in the U.S. put together, and I think all of the industry in the U.S. put together. The dollar value that you would have had to pay out in order to buy those slaves freedom and, and so-called avoid this war is is inconceivable. It's just no, there was nothing nothing like enough money for that. And furthermore, this argument is saying, well. Look, in Britain, you bought a slave because everybody knew slavery was going out. Your economy in England wasn't dependent on slavery, except that it was, because England's economy was predicated on textiles, and those textiles needed cotton from the South. But let's say you just made them an offer to buy all of their slaves. Let's say you, the money dropped out of heaven. That's the second miraculous unicorn fart I'll give you. But let's just say it did. You're saying to a Southern plantation owner, that I'm going to give you a one-time cash payment for your slaves, at which point after that, you are boned, right? You're finished. It's like somebody offering to buy all of the petroleum in the United States right now. Okay, great. Pay off our debt. Yep, we're going to buy it all. Fantastic. We'll take the money. Yeah, but when we say we're going to buy it all, we mean we're going to buy it all and... You can't have any more. Huh? No, we're going to buy up all the oil. We'll pay you for the oil. We'll pay you $30 trillion. You can pay off your debt. And that's it. You don't get any more oil ever. 
Well, we can't do that. Of course you can't do that. You, the, of course the South can't sell the slaves, no matter what the price is. They can't sell it. They need slaves for their, for their economy and their lifestyle to work. They need them. They have to have them. And so any argument that says that Lincoln is a tyrant and a murderer and the worst American ever because he went to war over this leaves you with a South where there's still slavery. And I don't, I, I'm again it. I'm again slavery. It's been, it was the, it was the fault line in the, in the country from the beginning. And you had to have it there because if you didn't, you wouldn't have had 13 original colonies. You would have had seven, Right. It was just punted. We just kicked the can down the road until we couldn't kick it any longer. And and all of the alternative arguments that he came up with for, for why Lincoln launched this insane, unnecessary war of aggression is nuts. You know, you, you find, here's a newspaper article from 1864 that says this, this, and this. Okay, congratulations. You found a newspaper article that says something that may validate your theory. This is like this is like the people who argue that the reason that the moon landing was faked is because the shadows bend or something, right? The lighting isn't right. Well, the lighting's perfectly right. You're just looking at it through a fisheye lens. It's just, there's a perfectly good explanation for all of this stuff. The two things I'll say about this is, did Lincoln, did Lincoln act in a dictatorial fashion to shut down freedom of speech during the Civil War. Yes, he did. There's no question about that. None. And I think the person who was most aware of that was Abraham Lincoln. But let me let me give you the counter argument for this. For those of you saying, no, the, we, he had no right to shut down those newspapers because he did it because he's a tyrant and he, and he can't possibly have had any other explanation for it. When Lincoln was talking about this late in the war, when he was talking about this, he explained why he did it. He said, look, the worst part of this entire nightmare is that I am required to sign death sentences for deserters in the human army, in the, in the Union Army. And Lincoln said, why am I supposed to hang some 17-year-old boy and not hang the person that's agitating him into deserting? That's what the, that's what the opposition press was doing, right? Lincoln said, it, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Why should I, I think the direct quote is, why should I have to hang some poor farm kid who's just doing his duty when the person that has, that has the, the rich person who's not out there fighting, by the way, who's just sitting in the back in New York or whatever, and I'm going to leave him alone? No. No, I'm not going to do it. He did it because we were at war. He, and Lincoln was clear on this. He used a lot of things that he did, not as his power as the president of the United States. He did it as his power as commander-in-chief. And for those people who say he wasn't, he wasn't really serious about abolishing slavery, probably true in the beginning. His job wasn't to recover or abolish slavery. He was elected to be president of the United States. He had to try to save the country. But once that happened, once you're in the war, right, the, the most important indication of Lincoln's intentions is is the 13th Amendment. And if you haven't seen Lincoln, I highly recommend it because that movie's not really about Lincoln. Most of it is about what Lincoln had to do to get the 13th Amendment passed. And Lincoln, the, the, the Daniel Day-Lewis speech is the high point of the movie. He basically says, he says, I am the president of, Lincoln had a very high voice. Everybody thinks, no, Lincoln, Lincoln had a very high voice. Somebody was doing a quote of him, and, he, and they said he would say, "Mr. Chairman, C H E E R M A N, Mr. Chairman." So Daniel Day Lewis got the voice exactly right, got the character after that. But he's Lincoln is there with his cabinet. He says, 
I am the president of the United States of America. I am uh, clothed in incredible power. He says, I need the 13th Amendment because what I did as commander-in-chief with the Emancipation Proclamation is on extremely shaky grounds, but this settles it. The 13th Amendment settles it. It settles it legally. It settles it through Congress, which is what I wanted to do in the first place. It settles it. And if you had, if you had a guy was, if you had a guy who was determined to keep power for whatever, you, you just don't have it. It just doesn't happen. All of the catastrophes of the Reconstruction were not Lincoln's fault. They were Andrew Johnson's fault. Andrew Johnson was a Democrat. Andrew Johnson was, the, was, the, was, was impeached, and it went to a vote, unlike any of the other impeachments, went to a vote. It was a tie, and the tie was broken. Johnson was the guy who, who put all this bullshit in place. Lincoln wanted to, he said, let them up easy. He said, just let them up easy. I'd just be happy if they just want to, if, 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 I don't need Jefferson Davis hung. I don't need Robert E. Lee hung. I just, he said, just shoo them away. Just let them leave the country. That'd be my, that'd be my uh, answer to it. And the final thing about this, this thing is, is this business about, well, there's no, there's nothing in the Constitution uh, that says that, um, that states can't secede. And I thought about this for a long time. To me, it struck me as the best argument, you know. Well, of course we can leave. It's a voluntary agreement. We got into it. Why can't we get out of it? Yeah, it makes sense to me. And, and I'm a guy who's strongly in favor of seeing a couple states go out of the union today. However, however, um, what is interesting about that argument is if your argument is that the is that the Constitution doesn't say anything about you having to stay in the union. It just suddenly occurred to me that the Constitution also doesn't have any mechanism for getting out of the Union. And the Constitution has a mechanism for everything. It's got a mechanism for everything. So when they signed the document, right, when, when South Carolina and all these other guys came into the Union and signed, signed the document and ratified the Constitution, they ratified a Constitution that had no provision for getting out of it. And there's a provision for everything. Now, you can take it as saying, well, if he has, if he has the ability, if the Constitution has the ability to resolve everything, and the Constitution is essentially perfect. I, I've still yet to find a flaw in the Constitution. All I can find is people who don't read the Constitution and don't obey it. But you can turn that argument both ways. They signed an agreement that told them the precise relationship of their state to the federal government, their precise relationship of their state to the people, what they can and cannot do. And nowhere in there was any mention of how to get out of the union. And, and you know, that's kind of like a, that's kind of like a judge's call on a contract, but it's not, it's not crystal clear that of course you can leave the union because if it was crystal clear that of course you can, then they would have discussed how to get out of it. The fact that they never discussed, the fact that they never discussed the mechanism for getting out of the union is telling me that everybody who was there at the constitutional convention understood that this was a marriage and we're sticking there. This is the argument against the Confederacy. Is the Confederacy, the Southern states, basically stuck around in the union until they didn't get their way and then they took their football and went home. Um, that's how, that's how, um, that's how the North looked at it. So, and, and, you know, and, and like I said, 
I'm a big believer in the 11th commandment. Razor Fist has a bigger audience than me. Anybody, and he's certainly much, much hipper than I am and younger and all the rest of it. Anybody that's bringing people into the, into the light is, is my friend and on my team. Right. And I'm constantly aware of feeling like the, the way I present things is dated and not as effective as it could be. So I just say all of that, but personally speaking for myself, not against him, against just against just speaking for myself, a full hour of of f bombs and shouting at me was just you know you know I, I, it was it was unpleasant to listen to and I'm on the team uh, I it's I just okay you know and and the, the the glasses thing okay we can agree to disagree on that but I've still not heard anybody give a good counter argument to it and there is a good counter argument to be made. So there we go. Um, all right. So uh, all right. Uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna gonna. Uh, oh, I didn't talk about O'Keefe, and I, I really do want to talk about that. Um, uh, Bill Whittle, if you lived in the time of Caesar, would you be a Caesarian or a Pompeian? I would be a Pompeian. I'm pretty sure I would be a Pompeian. Uh, um, yeah, I would be, I think. For those of you not up on current events, uh, the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire as a result of Julius Caesar marching on Rome and seizing power. There had been a number of internal coups prior to that, but this is the first time anybody had taken an external army legion and, and brought it into Rome from the frontiers and basically taken power that way. And the boundaries of, uh, of the Roman Empire at that point, the, the, the northeastern boundary was marked by a tiny little stream, I glorified it with the name river, but it was uh, the it was called the Rubicon, the Rubicon River. And so when you hear somebody say you cross the Rubicon, that means you've passed the point of no return. And Caesar apparently sat there and said, um, "If we go across that river, I'm in violation of Roman law, and and I'll be executed." So, so he did. There's a lot about Caesar that the that the Republic needed. A lot of reforms and a lot of energy. They were, there, there was no good answer to this one. I'm not a Pompey fan at all. I just think that Caesar, Caesar breaking the law, fractured the Roman Empire. It was after that. It was nothing but, nothing but, assassination and and murder. The Republic was in pretty bad shape. Or else he wouldn't have gotten away with it. But uh, I think finally, you know, I think. Uh, you know that, yeah. I I think there's a, the law was there for a reason. Now maybe we'll spend some time talking about Hannibal one of these days because Hannibal is widely known and very famous, but uh, Scipio not so much. And Scipio was an amazing, an ama Scipio Africanus was an amazing guy. A lot of amazing Romans. The whole um, uh, I almost said Peloponnesian Punic Wars. The Punic Wars were amazing biggest naval battle in history in terms of men anyway uh, was it um, I want to say Attica but it's not Attica it's uh, a a a 
actinia, three or four hundred uh, triremes on one side and all the rest of it. Anyway, O'Keefe. Um, look, I, I, all I know about O'Keefe um, is uh, what I saw today. Uh, and I saw the I saw Mark Dice segment on it today, where apparently there is some growling on the part of the board that uh, James O'Keefe needs to stand down from from this. Getting rid of getting James O'Keefe out of Project Veritas is like taking Steve Jobs out of Apple. The only question is, will you do fatal damage to the brand before you bring him back? James O'Keefe is Project Veritas. Project Veritas is James O'Keefe. When I hear things like this, it's enough to make me lose my mind. I, I, I would much rather see, much rather see Project Veritas wander off into the darkness and and just simply go away rather than see James O'Keefe kicked out of his own company. So Clint says it's the first time Veritas attacked anyone without evidence. Is that regarding the Pfizer thing? What, um, what, 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 what is it that they're so angry about? I, I still don't know. I, I haven't been following the story. I don't know what the board is saying. It sounds like, well, you're doing more damage than, than, uh, than, than good here, uh, James. I know a lot of people who are backers of Project Veritas. I'm not a financial backer. I'm a friend of James O'Keefe, and, and, I, and I, have a, I think he's the most courageous man in the, on, on the board. I think he's more courageous than Elon Musk. Elon Musk is a bigger target, but Elon Musk has a much better protection uh, resources. Hang on, I'm trying to get to this. Apparently, it was a HR headache. Is it because of, is the only thing they've got against him is because a couple of employees said that he was mean to them? Is that what they're going with? Kid, of creating a hostile work environment. Oh, is that it? Is that it? Well, uh, Project was hired without checking ideology. Guy who original complaint about O'Keefe has pronoun. Okay. All right, so look, apparently they are making these mooing noises, this bleeding sound, because somebody said that James O'Keefe was mean as a was a mean boss to them. <laughs> then fucking leave, you miserable crybaby bitch, you know? He's mean to you. He has to be mean. He's doing he's doing the toughest job in America. Oh, he's, 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 he's paranoid about security. He has to be. If he's not paranoid about security, it's not just a question of him getting something wrong. There's a very good chance he will be murdered, okay? This idea that, 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 that O'Keefe was mean to somebody, what difference does that make? 
if he's mean to somebody. I worked for Jack Horkheimer for 25 years. He was probably, in terms of my career, the single best thing that ever happened to me. He made me hyperventilate and get practically on beta blockers when I was 16 years old. He was the worst man to work for ever. He was a miserable, horrible, wretched, emotional, unfair, mean-spirited narcissist. And I stayed working with him for 20 years because it did me more good than harm and because he was a genius, right? Because he was really, really good at what he did. And when he wasn't being insane, he was being not only nice to me, he was going out of his way to make things happen to me. He gave me all of the chances that got me started. But to say that it's, uh, uh, well, it's mean is one thing. Okay, so look. So somebody somebody says he's mean. Okay, let's say he's mean. Let's say that he really is mean. Let's say that he screamed and yelled at the guy and, and, and called him all kinds of names and so on. That's not the point. And the point isn't even that this guy goes public with it because now he's you know a little butthurt and he wants some attention. The idea that the board is even having this discussion, the idea that this is news, is insane. And that board needs to go. The whole board needs to go. And, and listen, let's just be real clear on this, okay? When I say the board needs to go, I mean the board needs to go. If anybody who's voting for either O'Keefe to be either sanctioned or investigated on the basis of this, if they had evidence of him taking money, illegally then you'd have then you'd have something that even i would have to say well that's that's not the james i know but this whole thing sounds to me like people are saying it's an hr issue undoubtedly it is an hr issue but seriously james o'keefe is the most courageous brilliant risk-taking clever good man good man that i've ever known he is one of the best men i've ever met and what he does is essential and effective and dangerous. And for some board members to start to start whining, oh, well, he was mean to an employee. All of you go, all of you, goodbye. So so I'll just I'll just give you my position on this. And I know some people who are fairly big backers of O'Keefe, right? I know some people who are like big backers of O'Keefe. If this happens, then what James O'Keefe needs to do is he needs to resign. If they, if they give him any of this kind of grief, grief, he needs to resign. He needs to leave Project Veritas, and he needs to start a new 501c3 called the Veritas Project. And every single donator, donor and every single fan and every single supporter of Project Veritas will simply stop paying Project Veritas, and they'll start paying the Veritas Project. That is exactly what will happen, and that's exactly what should happen. If, if that board doesn't back down and apologize, then O'Keefe should resign, take his name with him, and set it up and do it all over again, he'll be funded in a week. He'll be funded in a day. I'd give him as much money as I could spare if I found out that was the case. You've got to stop this, man. You've got to, you, you've got, you cannot let this cancer grow. If, if you start getting, um, if you start getting uh, up to the point where you have to stop watching yourself because, um, because, because of what's behind you? He, he uh, Clint B says he if if James leaves Veritas dies he can work anywhere. If James leaves he takes Veritas with him. He takes it with him. It doesn't matter where he goes. He just takes it with him. And then look, I think the idea. This is this is what this is what made me so angry a week or two ago when we were talking about Brian Wilson. Mike Love owns the name Beach Boys. 
Brian Wilson doesn't own it. Mike Love owns it. And uh, and he's enforcing it. So that's just plain nuts. Steve Whoop says if Veritas joined Crowder, they could dethrone Daily Wire. I don't think anything's going to dethrone Daily Wire, especially those two. I think I think Crowder has really damaged his credibility. I mean, really damaged it. Certainly damaged it with me. Um, and uh, GB News uh, screws over Mark Stein now. James O'Keefe is screwed as well. Um, Mark Stein, Mark Stein just plain did not deliver what he said he was going to do in addition to stealing my uh, logo which got me in contact with his attorneys. Uh, no, O'Keefe O'Keefe is, is, O'Keefe has, has so much, has enough integrity that I think that, look, if, if O'Keefe for whatever reason leaves Veritas, I would not be surprised knowing Jeremy Boring's business acumen if he makes him an offer, but I would be extremely surprised if O'Keefe took the offer because O'Keefe is not in this for the money. And O'Keefe is not in this for the personal glory. O'Keefe is in this because he's committed to the truth. He cares about the truth. And that's why he goes after guys on our team too when, they, when they're blatantly obvious, right? If, if, O'Keefe, if O'Keefe is either forced out or, or, or made, made difficult enough so that he has to resign, then I think he simply just starts a new company and he is and he is fully funded in, in two days. Um, okay, so Clint, let me just talk about this, okay? I just gotta get this out of my system because I've been waiting to, I've got it in the can, I just haven't edited it yet. And I'm not picking on you, Clint, I'm just, I'm just seeing this a lot. Clint says, Crowder exposed the contracts that are enforcing censorship. I understand both sides. What is it about the Daily Wire contract that is enforcing censorship? I don't understand this. I've never understood the argument he's making. Crowder reads a paragraph out of the contract saying that if I miss if I miss a show, I get fined a hundred thousand dollars. What he's not saying is if he misses one show out of hundred and ninety-four. In other words, if he only delivers hundred and ninety-three shows, then he's fined a hundred thousand dollars. But that's because he signed a contract. He didn't sign. That's because the contract specified you will do X number of shows. And if you do X number of shows minus one, then we're going to hit you for this. Because we're paying you. I'm not going to get into the number because of the production cost. We're paying you this amount of money for this amount of shows. If you turn in less than that, then we're going to pay you less than we agreed to. What's wrong with that? How is that, how is that predatory? How is that immoral? How's that even anything other than just common sense? I've got it in the can. I just need to get it. I got it in the can because I did it on a, on a, on a uh, stratosphere launch a couple weeks ago. I have a unique perspective on this because I've been on both sides of both sides. DW uh, said fight censorship, then enforce. You get kicked off, banned from YouTube. You're dead financially. Clint, that's just insane. First of all, Crowder's making the argument on YouTube. Crowder's value is predicated on the 5 million followers that he has on YouTube, not the 1 million followers he has on Rumble. If Crowder 
gets himself demonetized on YouTube, then that means that Daily Wire makes less money. That means that they both suffer together. Crowder's putting it, the way Crowder puts it is, hey, if I get demonetized on YouTube, then I get fined and somehow Daily Wire gets what? They lose money. If the, I haven't seen anything in that contract that, that doesn't say if, if we get hurt, we get hurt together. And if we get good, we get good together. And, and furthermore, it's an, initial, it's an initial opening offer. Is it a hard-nosed offer? Yes. Is Jeremy Boring a hard-nosed businessman? Yes. But what's he going to do? Is he supposed to? Is he supposed to? Is is what? What's Jeremy supposed to do? Crowder's job is to negotiate his side of the contract. He never did that, by the way. He never did. He just said, "No, I just don't like it." Okay, fantastic. You don't like it? That's great. That's fine. Let me tell you what I mean by I've been on both sides of both sides. I'll tell you the both sides of the Steve Crowder thing I've been on. First of all, right? Bill doesn't mean demonetized. He means banned. If Crowder were banned from, if Crowder said, if Crowder were to do three shows that got him banned from YouTube, right? Um, then Daily Wire makes less money and Crowder makes less money, but it doesn't make no money, right? Crowder's, Crowder's economic value is in his reach. And the fact that Crowder is still on YouTube is telling me that Crowder managed to tiptoe through this minefield for his entire career. This idea, this idea that, that he's somehow going to be constrained by Daily Wire so that he doesn't get kicked off of YouTube doesn't make any sense. He's already not kicked off of YouTube. He's already constrained himself to the point of not getting kicked off of YouTube. Apparently he's demonetized, okay. He's still got 5 million followers. That's what they're buying. That's what the offer was for. So let me tell you, but on both sides of both sides. So his big argument, and this is the thing I don't, this is the thing I just think was just plain flat out at the very base, best best case, little disingenuous. He says he's doing it for, for, the, for the new content creators that are coming up. I, I, per, I, I don't follow a show, but I don't see that he's launched a thousand careers, right? I know that Daily Wire launched uh, Mike Knowles essentially launched Clavin, uh, Matt Walsh. Uh, he didn't launch the careers of, of uh, Candace or or Jordan, but he gave him steady income, which is a nice thing to have. So uh, let me get back to to me, okay? So I've been I've been in a unique position on this. So I've been on Crowder's side, and I've been on Jeremy's side, and I've been on each one of their sides both times at PJTV. I took a job as a wage slave for PJTV, and I do not own the afterburners that I did there. And when PJTV folded, those things disappeared from YouTube and they're gone. I did keep my favorite ones because I wasn't completely stupid, but the hundreds of, of, fire, of afterburners that I did for PJTV are gone now because I signed a contract that said that PJTV owns those afterburners and the reason that they own the afterburners is because they paid me money to do them they paid me money for me to make this it's like furniture 
right? I, of course I was a wage slave. That's a, that wage slave is a, is a term that is used as hyperbole. It is internally hyperbole. It's, a, it's an ironic comment. Uh, you want to you start your own business or you want to be a wage slave? Well, now I'm running my own business. But when I started, I was a wage slave. And, and, and for, for Steve to say how, how it would kill young people, I took the wage slave job at PJTV. I gave up ownership of everything that I did for them. And when I started a PJTV, nobody knew who I was. After I got tired of them owning my stuff, I left PJTV and then people knew who I was. So when I started BillWhittle.com and started doing firewalls, I had an audience. I didn't have that audience before I started as a wage slave. Of course, it was a good idea for me to be a wage slave at PJTV. The only argument you can make about that is try to is try to negotiate the shortest term possible. But PJTV, were the, they, they paid me money. That was what I did. My full-time job was doing what I wanted to do. So, okay. But here's a bigger point. Steve Crowder was a wage slave at PJTV too. I know that because when I was working there, he was brought in as the next hot thing, just like, just like um, uh, Colonel West was. And, and you know, uh, here's the next, uh, Joe the Plumber. They were always looking for the next new thing, some new talent. He had, PJTV had some pretty good in, in-house talent. They had Zoe, they had me, they had, they had that other guy, the, 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 the bald guy, whatever his name is. And, PJTV wasn't working economically, so they kept looking for some new guy. And I was there for all of the new guys who came and went. When Crowder was the new guy, it was all about Crowder. I went to Guantanamo Bay for the second time, and when I asked him what I'm going to be doing when I'm in Guantanamo Bay, he basically said, your job is to hold the microphone for Steve Crowder. You know what I said to that? I said, okay. Was I happy about it? No. But I did it because I was getting paid to do it because I wanted to go to Guantanamo Bay. Who gets to go to Guantanamo Bay twice, right? So I did it. I didn't have to do it. I could have declined the offer. And if I declined the offer, it doesn't mean I have to go to the press and tell everybody about how unfair it was and how my feelings are hurt because everybody's paying attention to Steve now, not me. They said, your, your, your job will essentially be to hold Crowder's microphone. Do you want to go? Well, I'm not happy about that, but yeah, yeah, I do want to go. Okay. So I went. If I didn't want to go, I wouldn't have gone. The day I stopped wanting to be a wage slave after my initial term had expired, was the day I stopped working for them. But I only stopped working for them because I could afford to. And the only reason I could afford to stop working for them was because I was a wage slave for them for four years and people knew who I was when I left. That's exactly the argument that Jeremy was making. He wasn't saying, and, and by the way, PJTV doesn't own what I do now. They just own the stuff that they paid me for. They don't own me into perpetuity. They just own the stuff they paid for. Is that unreasonable to you? It's not unreasonable to me. We shot that thing in a studio with remote control cameras. There was a crew of six or seven people there, all the editors and all. That. I didn't pay for those people. I got paid to write them, perform them. They paid me. It's theirs. Same thing for, so, so I've been on both sides of Crowder's argument at PJTV. Now let me tell you about how I've been on both sides of his argument with Daily Wire. I got a contract. I got an offer mm, years ago that basically said words to the effect of, and it was a it was a verbal offer. It was a, it was a conversation, which I chose not to record because Jared is a friend of mine. But basically, it was this: Hey, Bill. We this was years before, two three years before we did uh, Apollo Eleven. Hey, Bill, listen, we've been talking about this, and we're seeing some other guys doing a lot of these history podcasts. They seem to be really successful. I forget his name. His guys did this World War One thing and stuff. And he said, you know, we decided we really want to get into that. It seemed like it'd be a good market for us, and we can't think of anybody better to do it than you. So wanted to know if you wanted to talk to you about that. 
And I said, um, okay, what would that look like? He said, well, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd come in and you'd work here and you'd come in and you'd deliver a certain number of product every period, whatever it was and so on. And we would back it and we'd promote it and we'd give you the means to do it and you pretty much write whatever you want to and, and that's the deal. And I said, let me think about it. I talked to him the next day and I said, I'm going to pass on this one for two reasons. First of all, it seems like a lot of research and a lot of writing and those things are difficult for me. I have other things I want to do, but mostly, Jeremy, the reason I don't want to do it is because I don't want to be an employee. I just, I don't. I, I just, my independence is more important to me. If I was an employee working at the office going in, it would probably, it would probably piss me off more than anything I could get out of it. But it's an, it's an offer with job security. I would have gotten a steady paycheck that I don't have to worry about my membership like I do every single day of my life now, right? I have to deal with that stress of what am I going to do to make payroll this, this, this week or this month. That all would have gone away. And that's a real nice thing to have, being a wage slave. Lots of benefits to being a wage slave. Lots. But I decided that it was too much, so I decided not to do it. Okay? Now, let me tell you how I was on the other side of the other side. So I said no. I, I, I want to be independent, just like Crowder. I don't want to be working for you as an employee. I don't like the terms, and I don't want to do the work, so no. And you know what? He said, okay. And I said, hey, thank you for the offer. I appreciate it because I might have really needed that money. I might have needed to do it. But I said no. Two years go by, and I get another call. And this same thing from Jeremy. And he's saying, hey, Bill, uh, I know you didn't want to do this before, but... Uh, the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 is coming up. We're going to do something. We are going to do something to, to mark that occasion. And um, and we can't think of anybody better to do it than you. Do you want to do it? I said, yeah, I want to do it definitely. He said, okay, we'll send over a contract. So he sent over a letter that was essentially the same one he sent to Crowder, except there were probably seven or eight fewer, fewer zeros behind it. And one of those conditions was that it's a work for hire. Look, I've been working gig economy as a as a film editor since eighty nine. I get paid. I go to work. I make furniture for a guy. He sells the furniture. I get paid. I don't own that furniture. He's paid me for the furniture. That's why I work for him. Okay. So now this time, this time. I took it. And the reason I took it was, number one, I didn't have to be an employee. I didn't have to be there to do it. I could do it from here. I could write it from home. I could keep BillWhittle.com, could keep my membership, all the rest of that stuff. could keep all of it. That was number one. Number two, it was a one-off, and it was going to take four or five months of my life. But much more importantly was that I really wanted to tell that story. Now, if I had declined the offer because I was so determined to own a piece of it or because I didn't like the idea of, of, of whatever their ownership was or whatever. Whatever was in the same contract Crowder got, I essentially got. If I had turned it down, then that series wouldn't have been made. And as I said last time I talked about this, it was on YouTube, and I was very proud of it, and then they took it down off of YouTube, which is disappointing because I really love it, and I'd like as many people to see it as possible. They took it down to put it behind their payroll. Was I disappointed about this? Yes. Was I angry about this? No. You know why I wasn't angry about this? Because when I signed the paper, I knew that they owned the product. And that's why they paid me five figures of income. Okay? That's 
That's why they paid me money. And so I don't, I don't harp on the fact that it's not on YouTube. I harp on the fact that it's available on Daily Wire. And I might point out, by the way, the audio version of it, which is 80%, 90% of it, is available on iTunes or any other podcast place, right? So, so I don't get I don't get what the what the the great evil that had to be fought was, and since I don't get what the great evil that had to be fought was, I have to start looking for other alternatives explanations because if you don't like the deal, Steve, don't take it. Don't take it. And to, to close this little thing, to close this little thing, <laughs> Charlie Miller with a comment of the night, I'm eagerly awaiting Bill's Artemis, what we saw. Well, I won't be able to write that, uh, 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 Charlie, but I will see if I can adopt a, a, a small child and perhaps his child, my adopted grandchild, might be able to get that out when it, when it finally gets, when they finally get to where they say they're going to go. I think I think it was I think it was really uncalled for and I can't think of any rational reason for it especially these how we've got to protect these young content creators. Look, if Daily Wire was buying people up coercively kid, we like your stuff. Okay. We're going to buy you. Well, I don't want to be bought. Well, too bad. We bought you. Now you have to come in and work for us. Yeah, I'd have a huge problem with that. But that's not what we're talking about. It's an offer. You didn't like it, okay? So um, this is a no-brainer for me, and 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 I am sympathetic to a great deal of of Steve's argument, especially about wanting to be independent and not wanting to go in and be an employee and be be a wage slave, but he was a wage slave and then he worked for himself. I was a wage slave and then I worked for myself. If some young kid is coming up and somebody offers him like Daily Wire offers a guy who's like red hot, says, hey man, you know, we can really make you into something, then I would, don't be sorry, sorry for stirring the pot. I just had to get out of my system. And and I'm an, a guy with a, you know, with a with a growing audience and, and now they're going to give me a studio and all of the other stuff that you get with Daily Wire. And they're going to say, we're, and we're going to pay you this hunk of money to do what you want to do. And you're going to get a paycheck every week for that. He said, it was about enforcing the censorship of big tech. Clint, how does that work? How does that work? Crowder is essentially saying, because I get penalized if, if I get canceled from YouTube, that is playing into censorship. How does that work? I don't understand it. It doesn't make any difference. Crowder, the fact that Crowder is still on YouTube means he is dancing around the censorship censorship issue. To say that it benefits big tech is insane. The people that get hurt the most by that are Steve Crowder and Daily Wire. They both lose. How How does that help Daily Wire? How is it enforcing censorship? I don't like the fact that YouTube, I don't like the fact that YouTube owns the ability for me to say what I have to say or want to say, but it's real and I have to deal with it. That's why we host our shows on Rumble, but nobody watches them on Rumble. It'd be nice to do something about that. And if you're going to do something about that, it'd be nice to have millions of dollars behind you so that you can take the thing to the Supreme Court like Daily Wire did regarding the vaccine mandate. And so 
YouTube must be destroyed. I couldn't agree more. Look, I if you haven't seen it, go to BillWhittle.com and see the show that Alfonso Rachel and I did on shadow banning. And we're both really honest about it, really honest about it. We we talk about how 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 soul destroying it is. Now Clippy says, now you're beholden to YouTube. YouTube knows this and will use it against DW. He's already beholden to YouTube. I'm beholden to YouTube. Daily Wire is beholden to YouTube. Everybody is is beholden to YouTube. I really don't understand it. I'm waiting to hear it. I don't see it, right? It's a private company. And while I disagree with everything they're doing, and I think they should be sued, and, and I think the whole thing about carrier versus versus publisher, all of that stuff, ultimately, it's their platform. I... I, I Credit was still underpayment and assumed the risk in, in it. Yes. So I, I don't I don't look. This show's on this Stratosphere Launch show is on is on YouTube. I could say a number of things on the show that would get me kicked off of YouTube. I could do that. What would I accomplish by doing that? Right? I can't control it. So what do I accomplish by that? What what do I accomplish by it? Do I like having to refer to maybe the greatest crime of the century as the Victrola? No, I don't like doing that. And I don't like the fact that I have to do it. But that's the hand that you're dealt. I can either refer to this thing that, uh, that Dr. Tony created as the Victrola, or I can get shut down. So which one of these things do I want to do? Well, believe it or not, I'm not in it for the endless riches, right? I'm not in it for the uh, for the vast amounts of wealth. I'm in it to get the message out there. I'm not claiming to fight big tech. Daily Wire is the only way you can fight Daily Wire, Clint. And I'm not. See, this is what this is what adults and 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 people who respect freedom of speech can do. We can agree to disagree, and that's what we're doing. We're not. I'm certainly not angry. I'm. I'm enthusiastic, but I'm not angry at anybody. But, but, but the only way that you're going to beat YouTube is if you can get, look, here's how it works. Here's how big tech works. Okay. Here's how social media works. Here's why big tech has the control over us that they have. The reason that big tech controls the dialogue controls the censorship and they are censoring people. I used to have 400,000 views was the floor for a firewall. The last one got 15,000. So I don't need to be lectured about, about what it has to, what YouTube is doing to somebody, right? I'm not a fan. Now, let me just say this. Social media companies are privately owned companies. And in order to get on them, you have to sign an, an end user agreement. Nobody reads it. You check the box, okay? You check the box. Okay. Now, you don't have to have caps, Clint. I'm, I'm, I'm watching you here. My point is don't make claims when you're enforcing big tech's rules. How is Daily Wire enforcing big tech's rules? I don't understand it. I really don't. Big tech, let's take YouTube, okay? Because big tech is a bunch of things. YouTube has has 
censorship guidelines that will get you kicked off of YouTube if you cross them. And that is a violation of free speech. Yes, absolutely. Is it disgusting? Yes. Do I want to see YouTube broken up? Yes. Of all the things I want in the world more than anything, I want YouTube to be to be what it used to be. But how do you how how is Daily Wire enforcing this? The only way you're going to beat YouTube is to sue them. Let me just finish the point here, okay? Let me just finish the point. It's a private company, okay? That means that they can do whatever the hell they want to. And if you don't respect private property, this is why we're in the dilemma we're in, okay? This is the dilemma that we're in. We respect private property. We respect the fact that the government shouldn't tell you how to run your business. It's your business, and I am interacting with you volitionally. I am making an exchange with you. And because it's private property and because you're paying the server fees, right? I'm not paying for the server fees. People can access my videos on YouTube for free. If I hosted them myself, I would have complete freedom of speech, but I cannot, there's no way I can afford that, right? So, so stay with me here, okay? Now, they are a private company. That means they can do whatever they want to with the content, and there's nothing we can do about it because we agreed to it, and there's nothing we should do about it because it's a private company. If it was a restaurant that said, I don't like you, you're not wearing shoes or shirt, out you go. I respect the restaurant's right to run its business any way it wants to. Now, with that said, there is, in fact, there is, in fact, one enormously powerful, in fact, overwhelmingly powerful weapon that can be used against YouTube and Twitter and and Facebook and all of them. It's very simple. Okay, it's very simple. The legislation that was written at the beginning of the of the age of social media didn't know what to do with social media. So what they said was this, look, we're on YouTube, right? All of us, everybody. You're watching YouTube or you, everybody. If 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 Critical Drinker posts a review of a movie and uses a clip that's in violation of copyright law, YouTube cannot get sued by Disney. They can enforce copyright strikes, but essentially, basically, the way the, the way the law works is the legal status of YouTube is to say we are a carrier, all right? We're a wall that you post stuff on, okay? We don't control what goes up there. We don't control what goes up there. So if Critical Drinker post something that violated your copyright, Disney, don't come to us, go to him, right? Go to him. We're a carrier. We're just the electric company. We're just providing electricity. We have no say over what they do with it or not. In the same way that a gun company could say, look, we manufacture guns. We don't kill anybody. You use one of our guns to kill somebody? That's not my problem. Okay, so, so they consider themselves a carrier, but, 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 when they start making editorial decisions about what you can say and not say when they start when they start deciding who's going to be repressed and who's not going to be repressed they are not committing censorship in terms of the first amendment the first amendment protects me against censorship from the government it doesn't give me the right to go onto somebody's private property and say whatever i want to my freedom of speech right does not allow me to kick down your door come into your bedroom and start telling you what i feel like it doesn't that's not how it works my freedom of speech is protected from government censorship. 
And this isn't government censorship. This is, I'm getting to this, this is a private company saying, you're on our private property, our rules. Okay. But when YouTube starts censoring people and either banning them or turning them down the way Twitter did, now they are no longer a carrier. Now they are no longer, hey, we're, we, we're not responsible for the content. We just make the electricity available. Now they are a publisher because they're making editorial decisions. Now they're the electric company that gets to say, well, yes, sure, we're an electric company, but if we don't like the politics of the person, then we just turn off the electricity to their house. They're no longer a common carrier now. Now, now they are a publisher. Now they're making decisions. Now they have legal, now they have violated the law that they've been operating under in the same way that Disney, Disney had those special carve-outs of law down in Florida. So the only way to beat these people, only way to break them up, only way is to make this case in front of the Supreme Court, and that requires tens of millions of, of dollars to do, right? That's the only way it's going to happen, is for Daily Wire or somebody to go to the Supreme Court and say, they have to decide whether they're carriers, in which case they don't censor anybody about anything, or they are a, a publisher, in which case anything that shows up on YouTube, YouTube is legally responsible for. That's how you beat them. That's the only way to beat them. And, and until then, I don't see how anybody... I don't get to, I don't get to be here on this platform and cry about it not being fair to be on, being on this platform. I can talk about the emotional toll of being shadow banned and so on, but I don't get to, I don't get to be on YouTube and cry about the rules of YouTube Seriously, it's YouTube's rules. They are paying the bill for the servers. But if YouTube has legal protections because it is not editorializing, it's rather a carrier, now, now we've got a case. And there's another thing too. If it turns out that I'm being banned, shadow banned, turned down, algorithm is being adjusted to turn people away from me, I get revenue based on the number of ads I get seen. It's not very much, in fact, it's a trifle. But if it turns out that somebody at YouTube is taking viewers away from me because of my politics, that's costing me ad money from YouTube. That's fraud. And certainly, if the, if the numbers that I'm seeing are not correct, that's certainly fraud. Okay? That's a different story. And that's how you beat them. You just got to sue these people. And, and you've got to get them into court and win. It's, it's that simple. So Daily Wire got a case taken to the Supreme Court regarding the vaccine mandate. And, and that takes a big company. Look, if you don't like the big company, don't work for the big company. It's all fine. If I don't like YouTube's rules, I can either... Say what I want to say the way I want to say it, which is 95, 99% of the time I get to say exactly what I say, want to say the way I want to say it. But if I don't like that, then I have to go to Rumble. And that'd be fine, except nobody watches Rumble. And Rumble is not well managed. It's not even a question of, of, of Rumble doesn't pay. I don't care about the money. I don't care about the ad revenues. I don't make enough ad revenues for it to be worthwhile one way or another. Right? Getting demonetized on YouTube is not the issue. Getting banned from YouTube is the issue. 
because that's where the people are. The Willie Sutton, right? The, the, the big bank robber in the, was it, 30s, I guess? Willie, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why am I on YouTube? Because that's where the eyeball is. Right? That's why I'm here. That's why I'm playing by their rules. I can hate their rules, but I don't get to, but I don't get to cry about them unless they are committing some kind of legal transgression. And they are. They are. So, I, I don't know why this was a conversation that wasn't just held in private between these two people. The thing, the thing that I thought was most telling about the part of the conversation he recorded was basically he, Crowder said, there's a better way to do this, Jeremy. There's a better way to do it. Do it. You, you, let's just go with my way, and, and then we won't have to worry about all these other things. Okay, maybe Crowder's right. Maybe he's 100% right. Jeremy Boring is not, is not morally obligated to change his company structure, especially given how successful it is, because Steve Crowder wants him to. He doesn't, he's not obligated to do that, right? But you could, hear it, you could hear it in Steve's voice. It's like, there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to do it. Okay, and I can show you how to do it. Maybe, maybe you can, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, so that's uh, that's basically uh, my take on it, and um, and we constantly get um, we constantly get calls, uh, not constantly, frequently get emails from people saying, I "Can't see it on Rumble." Uh, have you tried another browser? I, I don't know what to say. Um, a friend doesn't send a boilerplate contract like that. I'm calling BS. You're right, Sad Wings. A friend does not send the kind of initial offering that Jeremy Boring sent to Steve Crowder. A businessman does that because we are talking about business and we're talking about millions of dollars of business and we are talking about an initial position to which Steve Crowder did not respond at all, right? Crowder could have said, instead of, gone, instead of going and, and, and going public with all this, Crowder could have said, look, well, first of all, I don't like this, 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 and this. And Jeremy Boring would have said, Okay, well, we'll talk about this. And over time, we'll give you that one, not this one. That's how negotiations work. It's not Jeremy Boring's responsibility to argue Steve Crowder's side of the, of the contract. I, I said on the Stratosphere Launch Show a couple of weeks ago, me arguing, me trying to negotiate with Jeremy Boring is like a kid with a spitball going up against an M1 Abrams, right? And I know that. That's the, that's the way it is. Does Jeremy Boring give me a break on contracts? No. Do I feel like I've been treated unfairly no do i think i've been treated generously no i have not been treated ge generously by him i've been treated like a business by him but as i said before and i had a lot of people saying it's not true don't can't don't get to tell me what's true about my personal life okay if okay so sad wings raised and says business decision he offered garbage utter garbage well let me tell you something sad wings if somebody had offered me $50 million for that deal, I would have taken it. I would have been, I would have taken it and I would have been extremely grateful for that garbage. 100% grateful to make $50 million for, for, yeah, that's, you can have whatever you want. You can have $50 million. It's all yours. You want to, you want to take it, 
put it on a hard drive and then smash the hard drive and throw it into a volcano? Okay, man. That's fine with me. Uh, you can, that's, that's, you know, $50 million is, is not a garbage offer. Um, so anyway, apples and oranges, Bill, why? Why is it apples and oranges? Is it because Steve Crowder is worth more than I am? He is. See how easy that is? See? See how easy that is? He's worth more than I am. He has more value economically than I do. That's why I don't get a $50 million offer. That's why I get a $50,000 offer. So, I love you too, Steve. Uh, so, um, I, 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 I see all this vitriol and I don't understand it. I don't. Yeah, Crowder came up with a counteroffer. I think Jeremy said 12.5 million a year and Crowder wanted 30 million or something. He said, it's just, it's just, love you too, Sad Wings. This is people, this is people having a, a, a discussion that they're passionate about. This is great. This is wonderful. This is how it's supposed to go. I'm, I'm passionately arguing my point. So are you. We're still friends. Hooray. I just, I just see it differently. I just, I just, I don't, I don't get to, I don't have the right to tell somebody else what kind of offer they should make to me or do make to me. Okay. I only have the right to say yes or no. And likewise, if I go at him with a pitch, he's not obligated to take anything I pitch. He just has the right to say yes or no. That's how it works. It took me a while to get over the fact that Jeremy was uh, dealing with me as a, as a business rather than as a friend, but then I realized that's his job. That's what he does. He manages a business. And as I said before, if I told him, called him up and said, hey, this is in business, this is personal, I need a hunk of money, he would go into his personal check account and he would give it to me. No questions asked. He did already. So anyway. That's that's the way it goes. I just don't I just don't think there's any really uh, point with it. Um, anyway, so yeah, there it is. The, the, I think the lesson that we should all have from this, the takeaway lesson, is simply this: we should all of us not. And and I'm I'm a minor player in this thing. I wasn't before. You turned down by YouTube, and and I was out for a while and doing other things, and and it cost me. I don't regret it, but it certainly cost me. Okay. But the but I think the bigger point here is that at least when people are saying, oh, now the right's tearing itself apart. We're not tearing itself apart. We're having a discussion about things. We have different opinions on aspects of this business. And we're having energetic opinion differences trying to come to some understanding of the truth. So um, so I, I, I think the left is going to be disappointed. This doesn't mean... I think any less of Steve Crowder, I, I talked about this before with Captain Kirk and William Shatner. Steve Crowder is, a, is, is, a, is an enormously influential, an enormously influential force for good in the world. That doesn't, it doesn't mean I, I have to agree with him on everything. It doesn't even mean I have to like him. It just means that he's a, he's a force for good in the world. And 
I think he's worth every penny of the $50 million. And I'm not. And I understand that. I don't have any, I'd like to say I have no, no problem with that. All I mean by that is I have no problem with the situation. I got myself in this situation or didn't get myself into his situation, one or the other. When I say I have no problem with it, it's like those are the decisions I made. I made different ones than he did. And whether or not it pays off, I don't know. But at least I have the satisfaction of, of saying I, I, I followed my heart on this stuff. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not arguing about the dollar value. And look, I, I, this, is, this is my entire point. If, if $50 million was crazy high or if $50 million was crazy low, that's not the point. The point is, here's your offer. Let's say they negotiated for three years. Okay, let's just say, let's just get that whole argument off the table. Let's just say they negotiated for three years and they could not come to an agreement. What's the alternative to this? I mean, what's the alternative? It, this is how free countries operate. This is how, this is how the, this is how the, 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 the private sector operates. I want to buy that lumber for this amount per cubic yard or whatever. Obviously, I don't buy a lot of lumber. lumber. Well, I want to sell it for this. Well, I'll give you that. Well, I might come down to this. Deal or no deal. Now, somebody say, okay, it's bad business. You can say it's bad business. Certainly Daily Wire has gotten a lot of uh, uh, shellacking from a lot of people who are on Steve's side, but I don't see it's, see, here's the thing. I don't really see it's, it's a, I, I don't see, I don't see either side being right or wrong. I just don't like the way it was handled. Linear foot, concrete, okay, whatever, you get the idea. Um, but my, my big point, my major point, board feet, thank you very much. Uh, I, uh, this is why you always want to uh, write what you know. And if you don't know, you ought to find out. I had a situation where there's an expression that the Germans used, German Chancellor, right at the beginning of the war. They've accredited to Bismarck, but it wasn't Bismarck. At the beginning of World War I, a German Chancellor said, talked about the risks he was about to take uh, with, with this, you know, World War I thing. And he referred to it as rolling the iron dice. That's a crazy good term. That's a really great term, rolling the iron dice, man. And rhetorically, I wanted to have something that, that said, they rolled the iron dice and it came up with a big win, okay? I've never played craps before in my life. And I start looking, I start Google searching for what is the biggest payoff in craps and then they get like a dollar value of the people that won the most and I start asking this and then asking that I just wanted to know what the what the what the best possible outcome would be longest shot that paid off that's what I want right something like that so I find a couple things you know I've even forgotten a single roll came up bases something like that. I don't remember exactly but when I submitted that script I put a little note there and said look 
I don't know anything about Krebs. Nothing. What I'm trying to get is a term that says that they took a big risk and it paid off huge. And I want it to sound like a like a like a dice term because that works for me rhetorically. So they checked on it. Turned out I got it right, but I only got it right because I spent four hours or two anyway trying to figure this out. Anyway, so um, you know everybody, you know, people talking about you know the, all this other consequences fallout Reagan and, and DeSantis and all the rest of it. We didn't get this crazy before. Well, we did during the Civil War. Um, but this is what happens psychologically to people when they're under assault all the time. And it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm not going to use the term PTSD. It is a, it's a form of, um, if you, if you keep poking an animal often enough, it'll get really aggressive. Um, So Eric says that we get as emotional as the left do just under different circumstances. Maybe. I, however, I have, and now, and then recently I saw on, on um, Odin's men that the that Tim Pool had a banned the guy from the quartering, and you know I think that's another Jeremy too, and it's like, okay. It, it doesn't, I hope that nobody comes out of this last uh, conversation hearing me saying that I think Steve Crowder's a bad guy and that he's wrong. I, I didn't say that. I turned down the same deal he turned down, and I also took the same deal that he turned down. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm not saying he's a bad guy. The only thing I'm saying is, is that I didn't see any reason why this had to be public, but it is public. And I don't see any permanent harm from that. I don't imagine he's going to be getting another offer from Daily Wire soon. But I was impressed by, uh, very impressed by Jeremy saying constantly that he's an enormous asset. He's just a powerful voice. And I'm not saying, I, I think you should go over and, and, and join the mug club. That's that's what I don't see on the left is, is that sense of, okay, hard won fight, you know, uh, you're bleeding out the nose. I'm bleeding out the lip. We shake hands, and and it's behind us. That's what we seem to be able to do. That's what I want to do anyway. So three hours and twenty one minutes. He did it, uh, and I'm fine with that. Um, ah, crispy mojo says uh, we should all just shut up and follow me. Then that's my personal motto. Um, to me, it's uh, it's the essence of everything. I think we did. I think it was on the uh, shadow banning episode. It was a. Uh, I think I closed up by saying, "Look, um, we uh, we we we're asking you for your support. We don't we don't take your money coercively. We don't have the means to take your money coercively. Because if we did, we sure would. We could take you for every penny you got. We just don't have the power. Otherwise." <laughs> I'd be in Cabo. I wouldn't be in Cabo. I'd be on the moon. Anyway, here we are. Uh, the fact that people listen to this is uh, constantly amazing to me. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I'm uh, look the ideological purity thing. More conservative than now, I am less conservative. I don't care. Everybody's different. There are no two people that agree on everything. We're all in the end of it. We are all a political party with one person in it, and um, and I'll take allies where I can find them, and I will take friends when I can find them, and um, and if I disagree with somebody, even about something really serious, it doesn't mean they're dead to me. It just means I disagree with them. Not nice. Something to think about in this increasingly polarized age, which is not an accident. It's part of the master plan from these bastards, and we're going to we're going to whip them out of their boots. I I genuinely believe it. All right. Uh, hey, guess what? This show is made possible by the members at BillWhittle.com. Not nearly as many members as many other people, but they are top quality. Top quality. And uh, to them, I am extremely grateful, especially during the last several months where this thing that I am doing uh, has taken a great deal of time away from people who are paying me and and they continue to pay me. And I just hope that um, I just hope that when you see the, the work, you'll you'll appreciate that that it was worth it because I am I'm extremely grateful and and I feel uh, great responsibility about that all right that'll do it I think so um you're all dead to me uh, I hope you all burn in hell I, I think you, know, you all you want to quit your membership let me burn I'll, I'll burn the money for you you just get the hell out of my place all, all the rest of that stuff yeah, no, whatever. It's for, for children um I plan on being here on Monday night, and uh, and so I will see you then. We'll talk some. We'll talk some entertainment. We'll talk some screenwriting. We'll talk about some other things. All the rest of this stuff. All right, here we go. So uh, here comes the um, here comes the uh, the the big um, kind of you know sort of kind of closing dissolve thing. <laughs>